This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported in part by Dell, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron. It is at this juncture I would like to announce that we are back. How many different ways can we say, and we're back? <laughs> hey, I don't know. This is not my problem. You write these bits, so I just have to say it with my astonishing voice. Your astonishing voice? Vocal cords. Hey, don't look at me. You wrote that as well. So I, yeah. I just say the words that Scott writes. And if you haven't figured it out, as I've been <laughs> trying to tell everybody, I am just a AI, artificial intelligence avatar. Yes, a okay. digital puppet, right? Yeah. I just sound better than Watson. <laughs> no thoughts of your own. No, no natural. You know, frankly, after all this time, which in the past couple of years anyway, I am a astonished by your vocal cords. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, they're that, very nice. That they keep doing this show with you. Yeah, I'm yeah. only just now getting to the point where I don't detest hearing my own voice in <laughs> no, a recording. Still, yeah, I know. I'm still not used to mine as well. Or some of the showbiz terms like housekeeping, right? That's yes. what we're, kind of what we're doing now. It is. We wanted to let you know that along with our new website, we have a new store. And on top of that, we now have the amazing support of our friends over at Abnormal Allies, who specialize in t-shirt, sticker, hat, and every other kind of wicked cool original art thing you can think of. And they are now making all of our stuff and taking care of getting it shipped out to you, which you should be thrilled about because let's just say Scott was about to be demoted from that position. Ha! You can't <laughs> fire me, I quit. Well, if only it were that easy. The point is, like the website, the store just leveled up. We got four new t-shirt designs up there now, and I gotta say, they're pretty cool. I think I've seen them all, but we completely redid the logo shirts, right? Yeah, and here's the thing about that. We were trying to decide between a large logo on the front only versus a small logo on the front and a large one on the back. So I threw a poll up on Twitter. Of course, I don't even know if you saw this. I should have tagged you in it. But over 300 people chimed in in less than 24 hours. Uh, yeah, and it was pretty much a perfect tie. Yeah, it was 51-49. I would say that the difference was statistically insignificant. <laughs> right, within the margin of error. Yeah, so say. I was surprised, actually. It was too close to call. So we decided to go ahead and make both designs for you guys. We also opted for different colors for the men and the ladies. And yes, they, they still glow, glow in the, the dark. dark. We also decided we're going to start making some shirts based on fan art and letters that have come in. If you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, you might remember that we got a really cool letter last year from graphic artist Anna Mason that was a hand-drawn Venn diagram. That's like with the intersecting circles. Oh, yes. Yeah. You're finally explaining what that is to yes, everybody. Yes, Okay, it's, good, it's, good and, job. Yeah, yeah, and it's about Astonishing Legends. It was pretty cool. I posted a picture of it, and a bunch of you guys said, make that a shirt. So we did. Of course, it's been like six months. Apologies, but <laughs> it's, it's everything, <laughs> everything we do is on a six-month delay. And then we have this one other design from listener and artist Zoe Boyd, who lives in Australia. And she was inspired by me saying probably too much. <laughs> Everything is connected, which of course is not an original saying by me, but a lot of other famous authors and, and thinkers and thinkers. Yes, yes, great minds, not including <laughs> myself in there, of course. But where I saw it recently, and I kind of like the saying, the way she phrases it, is from author Jane Hirschfield, who's kind of a Zen poet, and she has a good way of saying it. Zen pretty much comes down to three things. Everything changes. Everything is connected pay attention. Which I think if you're going to have a motto of remembering three things, those are three pretty good things to remember as a mantra for yourself. But yes, I have said it quite a lot on the show, probably too much for most people's tastes, but I believe it. And Zoe came up with this great collage of characters and objects from some of our most popular episodes, and I particularly love the cigarette-smoking skinwalker on this one. Oh yeah, the wolf head's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, any animal that's smoking a cigarette, even that chimp, it's funny, although not good for their health, I realize. Indeed. All this stuff is available in our store now. Just go to astonishinglegends.com and click on Store in the upper right corner. Additionally, we're making updates to the reward structure at patreon.com, so those of you that are patrons and haven't gotten your swag yet, you're going to be able to pick out one of those cool new shirts. We're also working on coupons to make getting that stuff easier for you. Okay, that's all the news for now. Let's jump down the rabbit hole.
to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. What freedom lies in flying. What godlike power it gives to men. I lose all consciousness in this strong, unmortal space, crowded with beauty, pierced with danger. Charles A. Lindbergh. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on Flight 19, the lost squadron of the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to lay out the structure of the forthcoming episode. Mm-hmm. We're going to recap a little bit what we talked about last week. And because there's some time that has passed, and I know the navigational aspect of this story can be kind of confusing. Yes, it can. And we've got some visual aids that might help with that. <laughs> yeah, you worked hard on those. Yes. And we're also going to do some updates and some of the things we speculated about last week. And we since had some listeners write in and set us straight on a few things that we didn't know about, like the radio equipment and that sort well, of yeah, thing. Well, yeah, people who are aviators and who have knowledge about and ham radio operators. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if we actually misspoke. We just didn't know a whole lot about it. Yes. Well, and YG, we plainly... IFF, how those all work. And so people have uh, written in kindly. Yes, they did. And thank you for that. You always feel free to do that. We plainly said we didn't know what we were talking about when it came to that <laughs> oh, stuff. Oh, plainly. Yeah, very nice. yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. A little pun intended. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk a little bit more about the search and specifically false alarms that came up during the course of the search, which there yes. is a, kind of an impressive list of those. We're going to talk about have the planes actually been found or has one or two of them actually been found? There have been Avengers recovered in different places, and that's going to be an interesting thing to look at. Mm -hmm. Is anyone still looking for them? We have a lot of little tangents tonight. None of them are too crazy. We're trying to reel those in a little bit, but we also know a lot of listeners like them. They are mostly relevant, I will assure you. (laughs) They are mostly relevant, but something interesting happened as we got into one of them in particular, remote viewing. That one unfolded, shall we say, and as a result, we have a surprise coming for you guys that we're going to reveal towards the end of the show. It was actually something that was mentioned in an interview I heard that got me to thinking about Flight 19. Well, of course, we were always going to do it as a topic because it's one of the big ones there. Come on, it was mentioned in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes. Flight 19 was, the planes being found out in the middle of the desert. But the interview you were talking about was about remote viewing, right? Yes, it was. And this came up as a teaser at the end of this interview. And I thought like, oh boy, that's kind of interesting. Well, that's going to add some bits to the story of Flight 19. So put that in the folder and here we are. We're doing it. That's right. So that's a little extra meat on the bone for this episode to get you through the break. Then we're going to talk about our patented theories. I say patented all the time. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> is patented. But, no, uh, and they're not really the, that great of theories uh, <laughs> to even take it a patent on. But, but you know yeah. how we like to do. We start with the most rational thing that makes the most sense, Occam's razor, and then we yeah. get way, way out there, which is where I think we're really going to have some fun tonight. We try and give you both ends of it and some good stuff in the middle, but the rational Occam's razor part of it, that's interesting. And the way out there, at least for us, is the fun part. Yeah. And everything else in between should stretch out nicely. That's going to be the crux of the show tonight. So let's start out with the recap. Last week, we talked about the last part of the run for Flight 19, when the radio communications were becoming more sporadic, and yes. the, the loss of connection, the planes are kind of going Things everywhere. Things are starting to go sideways, get unraveled from what should have been a very routine training flight. Yeah. And then the search, certainly while not routine, should have been a little bit better organized. And that's something that's going to come up later tonight as well. We yeah. talked about the disappearance of Training 49, the Martin Mariner, that vanished off the radar, although there were witnesses who saw an explosion 
in the general area of where the mariner was last thought to be, and they also discovered an oil slick on the water, but there was no debris, which is unusual, and no trace of that plane has ever been found, even though, as I said, it's only in 78 feet of water. I can't figure out why we haven't been back there in all these years. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about what happens underwater as well, yeah. the things that can happen in moving water. We also mentioned last week... That odd post-mortem telegram that came from George Panessa to his brother 21 days after his death. Yeah. Which was interesting. So let's get started. Updates to last week's episode. Okay, so <laughs> this is important. For last week's show, part two of Flight 19, we talked about how Martijn Hogendorn, who's part of the Astonishing Research Corps, otherwise known as the ARC, he mm. lives in the Netherlands, and he's relatively computer savvy, and he wrote up a full tour of navigation problem number one, as well as a speculative route on what might have happened to Flight 19 once they lost their way, and put it all into Google Earth. And it's really cool because it also has locators along the route that you can click on and see radio conversations and when they came in. And it has the location of the Martin Mariner, where it went down, and the location of the radio fix. And you can see people's faces blurred out. Yeah. No, no I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding. No, yeah. there's nobody to see. But yes, it, it would be as you were flying low level. Yes. This navigational route, which the bombing was low level. So yeah, well, the bombing yeah. was low Over level. Hens and chicken shoals. I think it was a singular hen and then multiple chickens. I like to say multiple hens. <laughs> it, just every, get multiple everything. Yeah. And why is it a rooster and, and the hens? Yes. I mentioned that before, but it doesn't make any sense. Here's the thing about that. He was unable to record what was happening in Google Earth there. And he sent it to me. So then I imported it into Google Earth and I was going to make a desktop movie of it and post it with part two. It would also be on our YouTube channel. And I did that and it came out to be about four or five minutes, but I didn't know how to get audio in. And it was also 1130 at night on the posting night. And I, <laughs> yeah. at that particular moment, I didn't care about putting audio on it. And I posted it up and people were like, there's something wrong. Where's, you know, <laughs> well, which, expecting and, audio it, with it, everything. Yeah. And it, I went back and watched it myself and I was like, well, this is weird. So. Well, yeah, but you, yeah, and you know, <laughs> what the flight turns they were trying to make anyway. But, but I was like dragging it around no. and dragging the little locator. You guys should have seen me. I'm like drooling. My eyes are falling <laughs> down. So yeah. I went back earlier this week and I figured out how to add audio to that movie and I remade the whole route in Google Earth. I started with Martine's route and then I narrated how the route works. And now on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash astonishing legends. If you didn't know we had one, we do. And we're not publishing to it a lot, but we're going to be publishing more and more to it in the coming years. I put up a 16 minute video of Martine's tour of Google Earth. And I explain all the different locations and you can hear me talking just like I'm talking now and it explains everything and now it has audio. So I replaced where it appeared in the part two posting last week at our website, but also you can find it on the YouTube channel, however you want to find it. There are people, and I get this, who have a problem with directions. It's just foreign to them. Like, which way am I going? North, south, east, west, and understanding <laughs> maps. And there's right. absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm not, we're not looking down on that at all. I still say you should learn the four directions, north, south, east, and west. There's only four people. <laughs> it's such a helpful thing for your life. But yes. Yeah. But yes. we get it. People get turned around very easily. I do myself as well, sometimes driving in unknown territory. I can't remember which route I took, and this may have happened to Lieutenant Charles Taylor. So that's why we put this up there. We wanted you to be able to understand exactly where Florida was, where Cuba was, where the Bahamas were, where Grand Bahama Island, and how they might have gotten mixed up. A lot of people have chimed in already who have gone over and watched the video and said, oh, I understand now, yeah. I understand. So if you want to really try to wrap your head around what they were supposed to be doing and how they might have gotten lost, go watch the Google Earth tour 
for Flight 19. And thank you, Martine, for putting that together. After doing the 16-minute audio recording of it, which was all like off the cuff and everything, and making the desktop movie and then sending it up to YouTube and all that, I realized that I failed to mention the Martin Mariner's disappearance location. But you can clearly see it. When I'm zooming in, you'll see it there. I didn't make a direct verbal reference to it, but you can see where it went down and what its proximity was to Flight 19's route, just in, in the search area. Right. Moving on from that, we did also have some questions from people who were asking about the altitude because we had mentioned that these training runs run at about 1,000 feet for the torpedo bombing, but later you hear the radio call where he says, I'm at 3,500, I believe, or, or higher. That's not really a discrepancy because after they finished the torpedo runs, they might have gone to a higher altitude, especially because they were lost to increase their radio range and also to increase their ability to see to the horizon and try to sight some land. Yeah, think about that. The higher up you are, the more land you can see, the further you can see. Exactly. So that would be the reason that they would have been higher up after practicing the torpedo run. They're definitely not dropping torpedoes from 3,000 feet because it would be hard to hit anything. You're also more vulnerable and you can't maneuver as much, of course, if you're, you know, only 1,000 feet in the air, which I know seems far up, but for a plane, that's fairly low. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the Google Earth video, to make it easier to get to, we embedded it both in part two and it will also be embedded in part three by the time this is posted. So you can find it in our show notes, which you'll be able to get to from a link in the description in whatever podcast player you're using. The description of our show has a link to the episode page. The other thing we got more information on from a couple of pilots as well as a ham radio operator was what that antenna, that wire might have been that we can see in the pictures of the Avengers. If you go to any of the historical sites or the pages that we've posted associated with this episode, there's like a mast above the canopy that looks like it's maybe a foot and a half or two feet tall, and this wire runs from that back to the top of the tail. Yeah. And we had some speculation that might be a direction finder, but Larry Cush had said that single-engine aircraft didn't have direction finders as per Navy policy. Right. Which I then said, why would a single-engine aircraft, which is going to have a higher likelihood of having a problem, not have direction finders or an automatic direction finder on board? Pilot Jay Fegnant wrote in to us and gave us the following information. He said that an HF radio antenna, which we had speculated it might also be an HF radio antenna, and that stands for high frequency. He said that an HF radio antenna would not be useful for navigation, only communication, and that this is consistent with the squadron using 3,000 kilocycles to communicate. A station with direction-finding gear could get a bearing on the squadron if they transmitted continuously. NDBs, or non-directional beacon stations, are basically AM radio transmitters. You can use the ADF receivers to listen to and locate AM stations. The furthest I know of a non-directional beacon reaching is about 400 nautical miles. And we had said that it can only go to 75 miles. That is a current standard. He said that in the military, they were capable of reaching even further because they had more power. HF radio can reach thousands of miles, which is what those antennas were. The signal skips back and forth off of the Earth and the ionosphere. HF is still in common usage by airlines today when they are crossing oceans or certain sparsely inhabited land areas. And to the Navy's point, this is something that he pointed out, and I didn't think about when I was saying, why didn't those single-engine planes have the... He said that that equipment, it may have been a matter of payload and space because the radio gear, especially the direction finders, were particularly heavy and bulky. So if they'd have had them on board, it would have shortened their range, required more fuel, not enough space for other things that they needed. So that does make sense why the Navy would say, hey, it's a single-engine plane. It's too small for all this bulky direction-finding gear. They need to know how to get home from other methods. 
So mm -hmm. we're not putting it on there. And the difference between the direction finder and the automatic direction finder is you have this loop. I think it's shaped like a circle that you have to turn towards the signal to get, yeah, you I, know how this works? So under section H here, it says direction finding equipment. And the explanation is direction finding equipment consists of a radio receiver with a loop antenna. When the antenna is trained so that the plane of the loop, that would be the flat part over the, plane. the pole. Yes, yes, the flat, <laughs> not, not the not airplane. airplane. No, yeah. yeah, the plane of the loop, the flat part, is perpendicular to the direction from which a signal is being received. The strength of the signal is at a minimum. In this way, the signal is ascertained to be coming from one of two reciprocal directions. So what they're talking about here, and a good way to sense in on the homing device, is to have the plane fly at perpendicular angles. So that way, signal gets stronger, signal gets weaker, signal gets stronger, Signal gets weaker that but way. But you can also rotate the it, donut. Exactly. Too, right? right. And so the yeah. automatic direction finders, as you will say, will do that automatically. And right. the, the aid of a tiny computer will figure out where the signal is coming from. But oh, that's yeah, the idea. Here's the thing. At this yeah. time, the computers weren't necessarily that tiny, right? Oh, that's, <laughs> well, no, yes, right, exactly. That's why the radio equipment took up a lot of the plane. Right. And I believe in the Devastator which was the predecessor to the Avenger. The Devastator was, it wasn't that the plane that wasn't a very successful model, right? Well, it didn't have a very good performance at the Battle of Midway. They launched 41 Devastators during the battle and it produced zero torpedo hits. Right. You got to figure there's a bunch of Japanese Zeros shooting them down anyway. That's yeah. the property of a torpedo plane. You have to come in low and slow. Now you're a target. That's also what we're talking about with low altitude. They have to practice low-level bombing runs because you're dropping a torpedo. You're not dive bombing. You have to come in low. You're kind of a sitting duck at that point. And so out of the 41 Devastators that were launched, only six returned to their carriers. Yeah. Now, the, and they were loaded yeah. up with bulky direction-finding equipment. Well, yeah, that's, that's what they Maybe that's said, why yeah. the Navy said no more direction-finding Well, equipment. here's another point to the Avenger is that all the pilots of the era said, yeah, that thing flew like a truck. Now, there's a good and a bad side to that. They're not very nimble, but they also are not very squirrely. So they fly fairly steadily, but they're slow and they're big and bulky. So the radio equipment of the day was very heavy. You're talking about there's a lot of electricity going on in that plane, so there's a lot of, you know, generation yeah, of, of energy. and you just told me today at lunch, which I didn't realize this, I hadn't really thought about it, but you said that the gun turret, which by the way, the Avenger has, if you haven't looked at any of the pictures, it has a gun turret on the top of the fuel slodge at the back of the canopy. When you're thinking about this, if you can't envision what it looks like, it's if you saw the Memphis Bell. Oh, and yeah, any of the or, great old bombers of the day where you yeah. have the uh, blister on the plane with the gun sticking out of it, that has to be turned right. electrically. So think about that. It's too much for the guy to kind of swivel. I mean, you get bad back problems <laughs> doing that. You, yeah, it's not like in the Millennium muscle. Falcon. You just got to lean a little bit oh, and that, swing it around. Right? <laughs> but same principle, right? Yeah. These guns are being swung to and fro, trying to shoot down or defend themselves against enemy attack. And not always successful, but that's all you had back then. But I was pretty impressed that they were electrically driven. Yeah, that's amazing. And it, also, they must be heavy, and it must require a lot of power, to your point. Another one of the really fascinating images we found that we posted last week with part two, and we'll post again with part three, is the uh, gunfire pattern from the adventure. You can take a look at how yeah. the range of where the turret can reach. Because right. you always wonder that thing, it's like... What if they shoot the tail off? You well, know, but, well, no, but there, and in the tail, there was another 30 caliber machine gun yeah. that pointed down. So if they got attacked from below or above, you tried to protect yourself as much as possible. So I but, guess that yeah. same guy had to get out of the turret and go to the other one? No, that was the, uh, actually the guys, no, right? actually the radio man had to operate that oh, 30 caliber Oh, he was the machine gun. guy. Jeez. Right. So wow. He had to do that standing up and bent over. So right, while sending radio signals. Not a lot of room to operate, but the Avenger was a much better plane than its Japanese counterpart. So yeah. it was a huge improvement over the Devastator, but again, this thing is like flying a truck with a lot of gear on it. Well, getting back on the radio, 
I do want to talk a little bit about another listener we heard from, Joel Gonzalez, who is a ham operator. His license number is W4G as in golf, O-N. He wrote in to talk a little bit about how the HF band works as well. Now, if you don't know what a ham radio is, it's something that I feel like a lot more people knew about it in the 70s and the 80s. Even when I was a kid growing up, it seems to be less in the zeitgeist uh, now. <laughs> yeah, I was actually had wanted to put one in my Jeep before I sold it. I still like it because they have handheld ones now. They don't have all the bells and whistles. But this yeah. is an amateur radio that allows you to talk Pretty all much over the world. To people all over the world, just yeah. from wherever you are. Now, we used is... to listen to one as a kid, but that was the same idea of the antenna. My dad stretched a wire from one tree branched all the way through the tree to another one. You put a clip on that, and that was kind of a cheap ham radio antenna. So that's what we're talking about before, about the wire stretched ventrally in the midsection of the plane to the tail. So to operate a ham radio, you actually have to get a license from the FCC. You have to take some tests. They used to be harder... Back in the day, the initial tests are a little easier now, but there are some more sophisticated ones that you can get as a ham operator. Now, Joel Gonzalez sent us the following message via email regarding the antennas and gear on the Avengers. He said, hi, I'm a ham and I operate on the HF band on a regular basis. The most likely technique used to get a fix on the flight was via HF direction finding. This is a little bit what we were just talking about. The land stations might have also used large rotatable antenna arrays or beams to triangulate on the flight. The wire antenna strung between the canopy and the tail of the plane would have been the HF aerial, or high-frequency aerial. There were mammoth-sized base stations with enormous antenna arrays on land to offset the relatively weak signals from the aircraft. And at this time, back then, this information that he's talking about, it might have been classified or unknown to the general public at the very least about how they were getting these signals from those planes way out to sea because we right. were just wrapping up World War II. Joel went on to point out some far more technical information, which we've included in the show notes regarding propagation of these signals at night, et cetera. He had posted, he had some kind of app that was really cool that did snapshots of the propagation, how far your signal was going. And he, he was indicating that you could get halfway around the earth. It yeah. was, it's yeah. so cool. It's, it's something that I'm very interested in. If I had more time, I would be taking it up. But the aerial antennas that we can see in the pictures on the Avengers were most likely HF or high frequency radio antennas and not direction finders or automatic direction finders. And again, as we said, one extremely plausible reason that the Navy might have said, hey, we're not putting that in these planes is because it was bulky and heavy and it would have limited the plane's ability to perform. Here at Astonishing Legends, we're always operating at the bleeding edge of technology. You mean like when you taped an extra microphone to your headset so you can do phone interviews? Hey, that was just the one time. Skype was acting <laughs> weird. Anyway, what I was saying before you so rudely interrupted me is that even though we're using the latest and best digital technology we can afford, we still need to print a lot of stuff out. That is true, because whether it's show notes or a photo of a demon that Scott thinks looks like a palm tree, or even the application instructions for our fabulous sticker, there's just no digital substitute for holding a print of something right in your hands. It was a palm tree. Anyway, that's why we've partnered with Dell to bring you this terrific offer. That's right. If you haven't thought about upgrading your printer, or you're getting a new one for your kid or your business, or whatever the reason, this coming week is the time to do it. Because if you go to dell.com slash legends, you can get 40% off their lowest price for a cutting-edge printer loaded with the latest features and get free shipping. If you haven't shopped for a multifunction printer in a while, you might not know that price wars between the top brands mean that a printer you might have paid three or even 400 bucks for a few years ago, you can now get for under 100 bucks. And some great printers are even under $50. 
Not only that, Dell, of course, has the printers that offer all the latest features and technology you expect. Wireless printing, printing from thumb drives or your camera's memory card, copying, scanning, and faxing, and they even have 3D printers that come with recipes so you can make all kinds of cool stuff. Recipes? So does that mean I can print a baked potato? No, you nitwit. Recipe is the term for a pre-made plan for whatever 3D object you want to print. However, food printing is coming in the future. I'm not ready for the future. Clearly. With other brands, you end up constantly replacing your ink and toner cartridges, and that costs as much or more than the printer itself in the long run. But Dell printers have been designed to be super efficient with their supplies, so you get high-quality printouts and photos for a much lower cost of ownership. Okay, so once again, here's the deal with Dell. For this coming week only, go to dell.com slash legends, L-E-G-E-N-D-S, to get 40% off their lowest prices on their best printers and get free shipping. One more time, to get a top-of-the-line printer you didn't know you could afford, go to dell.com slash legends to get 40% off with free shipping. And then you can print out steaks. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Chris Cogswell, host of the Mad Scientist podcast and scientist on the Astonishing Legends Research Corps. Without us, Scott and Forrest would be lost. Now, back to the show. Other Mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle This story might just be a case of people getting lost. Yes. We're, we're going to talk about all the theories there, but the whole idea of it is within the filter of the presence of the Bermuda Triangle. Of course. It's always a great topic, but I think what's great about this story, aside from the such of the huge loss of life, of course, is that, yeah, when you start breaking it down like we do, you'll see that a lot of things are understandable and are explainable. But what I love is that there's just a few tiny little crumbs here and there that are strange enough to be attributed to possibly some kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Specifically in this region. And if you go back and you listen to Bruce Gernon's story from, again, a guy that we believe that makes a lot of sense, some strange things happen. And it's not paranormal. It's just weird natural science. Yeah. That we don't understand That yet. we don't understand yet. And we discussed the statistical insignificance. I got, this is the second time I've got to say that No, I like to say today. that margin yeah. of error, yes. Yes. <laughs> in the difference of losses in the Bermuda Triangle compared to the rest of the Atlantic Ocean or the ocean area. Right. Even Lloyd's of London, who is the largest insurer, I guess, of maritime craft, does not have elevated rates for the Bermuda Triangle. And that might be because, again, statistically, as you break it down, on paper, as accountants will do, there's really no risk involved that's out of the ordinary. But when you start taking apart little aspects of this, is it any stranger? Exactly. And I'm so glad you brought that up that way because that's what I was thinking about this. It's not necessarily that the number of disappearances is or isn't different. It's the type of them. It's the nature. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we don't have any way to do a statistical analysis of how many ships have been lost. Like for Lloyd's of London, it's just like X number of ships lost in a certain number of years, yeah. X dollar amount of cargo, whatever. But if that ship is lost in the North Atlantic, somewhere outside of the Bermuda Triangle, right. and it just sinks in a storm, or it has a collision, or piracy, which doesn't happen in the North Atlantic that much, but yeah. that sort of thing, if that's going on, it's a loss. Whatever it is, Lloyd's of London is saying, hey, this is a loss. If the ship turns up and the weather's been perfect and nobody's on it, yeah. <laughs> then is it a loss? Well, if yes, if it was sitting too long, it's still a loss. So for them, on their little check sheet, right. it's like, this is a loss. But is this loss a weird loss? Lloyd's didn't care about that. No, the, <laughs> the, right, the, the uh, strangeness aspect of it doesn't really figure in because for them, 
and for all corporations, it's about money. It's about cost. And if you were to avoid this area, which has a ton of shipping lanes and a lot of commerce going through it, like, well, that's too weird. We're not going to insure it. Now these ships, cargo ships have to go around it. That's huge cost. Right. The only way for them it's actually going to make a difference is if if captains started saying, I'm not going there. And then they yeah. have to be like, all right, well, it costs more to go through there because they're reluctant to go in the first place or they want to go around it, even exactly. though it's the most direct route. Right. Yeah. It's all these factors tying in. And for them, it's like, well, it, shipping's a dangerous business anyway. Being out on the ocean is dangerous anyway, no matter where you are. So over the whole course of all the math, we don't see any particular rise in this, but for those individuals, I guarantee that have seen something strange or experienced something strange or never came back from something strange, yeah. it's a very mysterious area. Yeah, and we're talking about maritime events here, but with that, we're taking into account aviation events at sea. I wanted to just touch on a couple of famous Bermuda Triangle losses. There's a lot of them. Yeah. One of the ones that's kind of fun, although we're going to see might be a little bit apocryphal, is the cargo ship, the Ellen Austin, which was going from New York City to London in 1881. They're underway and they found a deserted schooner. So they approached the schooner and the captain, I guess, ordered a skeleton crew to get on board and they were going to sail together and it would take it in. And as we oh, know- a little them, Mary Celeste action. That's right. Yeah. You're going to take mm -hmm. it in for the salvage reward because if you find an unmanned ship, the rules say that you can bring it back and be fairly uh, compensated for a large percentage of the value of the, the craft and cargo. The law of the sea. Yes. yes, the law of the sea. So he sends this crew over and a sudden storm comes up and the two boats are separated. The Ellen Austin is separated from the schooner and eventually the storm passes and they see the schooner again and the crew is gone. The skeleton mm -hmm. crew was sent to it. Now there's some stories that say that a second crew was sent over and the same thing happened again. However, looking into the yeah. records, there are several sources that say, well, there's no records that corroborate this story. So that one maybe, but it's like the big fish story. Yeah. Fishermen tell stories. When it comes to stories about the ocean, they go pretty crazy pretty quickly in yeah. terms of what happened, especially when you're surprised at sea by large tentacles wrapping them. <laughs> no. Hashtag team giant squid headed by Marie Mayhew. Yes. But it's like this one we said in part two, it's the story of flight 19. When you just add a few dramatic details to it about something that was said over the radio, like the sky looks weird. We can't make heads or tails of the wave tops here. Everything looks kind of gray. Then you're adding a little mystery to it. And for those of us with a wild imagination, start, ooh, maybe there is something kind of strange and devilish about all this. And it's like, well, they didn't really say that. They did disappear, but all these other strange elements maybe didn't happen as dramatically as people are retelling it. So you have to consider that with all of these types of stories. But what Scott's getting at here is just the facts that, as we know them, are kind of weird. Yeah. So after the Ellen Austin, the next one I want to talk about, which is more famous and more significant because it's actually on the books, 1918, the USS Cyclops. Well, I think if you're naming a ship that, you might be uh, itching for some uh, weirdness. Yeah. This ship vanished without a trace in 1918, as I said, 306 souls on board, crew and passengers. It is, I think still to date, the largest non-combat loss of life in U.S. naval history. Now, there's been some speculations that it was sunk by a German sub. A U-boat. Yes. Yeah. And no one ever claimed it, and then it went down. They also have said that it might have had a structural failure because it had a super heavy load of 11,000 tons of manganese ore mm. on board, and maybe structurally it just couldn't handle that. The Naval History and Heritage Command, whose website we've been to a lot for this particular episode, states that it probably just sank in an unexpected storm. Either way, 
No trace of the Cyclops has ever been found. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the Cyclops had two sister ships, the Nereus and the Proteus. They were also both lost, but in the North Atlantic, both carrying the same thing the Cyclops was, dense, heavy, metallic ore. Throws off the balance of a ship. Right, and also it could be causing it to collapse, yeah. just structurally, because I seem to think that whether it was the Edmund Fitzgerald or it might have been another vessel that was uh. on the Great Lakes that got the opposite of high-centered between two wave crests. So what yes. they su- suggested was that the storm was bad and the waves lifted up the bow and the stern, but suspended the middle part of the ship and in then mid-air. crushed under its own weight. Right, it just collapsed in half. That might be the Edmund Fitzgerald. I feel like it was, but I'm afraid to say it definitively. Yeah. Which they but, found. Yes, they have, and they put a new bell on it. The point is that, is this a Bermuda Triangle mystery? or is it just a case of bad planning? Yeah. It's hard to say, because all three ships went down. Only one was in the triangle. So again, maybe the triangle connection is apocryphal. But let's go from marine to aviation. Okay. Douglas, DST NC 16002, December 28th, 1948. This airplane was en route from San Juan, Puerto Rico to Miami. It too vanished without a trace, 29 passengers and three crew members. Now, we're going to take a look at the circumstances here. The pilot, Robert Lindquist, had told ground crews before they took off that the batteries on the plane were discharged and low on water. Yes, you used to have to put water in your batteries. Yeah, well, that's right. You well, lead, yeah, so lead anymore. acid batteries, sure. Yeah, and if the water goes down, they... They get dehydrated. They get dehydrated. You lose charge. Yeah. But Captain Lindquist was concerned about staying on time, so he went on to tell the ground crew that the batteries would be recharged by the Douglas's generators during the flight and could be replaced later. So I went online to see if a generator could charge a dead battery. And from what I read, it can. But I have a personal experience that's very different. Oh, uh, and you're Austin. Yes. Yeah. I have I have a 1964 Austin Healey that's been in my family since it was new. It was my grandfather's and it was my dad's. And I've had it about 15 or 20 years now. And it's been restored a few years ago. And it has a generator, not an alternator. Older cars had generators. Mm-hmm. And it recently had a dead battery. And it stays in storage most of the time. And I went to take it for a drive. And you were there. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I went to take it for a drive to keep it running well, and I took it out, and I jump-started it, and drove it for about half an hour, and I thought, oh, when I get back, the battery will be charged, this car that has a generator. At least the depleted charge, it had occurred. Yeah, Yeah. at least a little bit, and I I drove it around, and then I took it back to the storage facility, and I pulled in, I turned it off, and I was like, let's see, I was so curious, and I turned the key, Nothing, and, not a, not even like, anything. not even the fuel pump. It was So after 30 minutes of driving in this yeah. car with this dead battery, with a generator, nothing happened. So what I'm saying is, if the Douglas airplane right. had been my car and then that had engine trouble, they would have died. Yeah. They, the plane would have gone down. Right. So either way, it doesn't change the fact that the plane vanished without a trace. No trace of it has ever been found. In fact, there was even less of a trace of it than Martin Mariner Training 49, where people, eyewitnesses saw an explosion. Yeah, aviation fuel and oil, a slick that the SS Gaines Mills yes. found while cruising in the area. But that's all I found. And I'm not surprised that there's no floating wreckage. You know, on a passenger ship, you have a lot of cushioning, you have uh, plastic bits, things that'll float. It's hard to say on a Mariner how much of that is going to float, but it is a little odd that they found nothing other than fuel and Yeah, you oil. would think there would be something. And also, I want to reiterate, you keep saying that they found an oil slick, but we I did read in at least one source that the water was tested and it wasn't oil. Yeah, I had read that too. So 
that's the account of the captain of the SS Gaines Mills. Was yeah, that he yeah. saw oil or what looked yes, like oil? It looked like oil. But he there wasn't was like a, putting a test tube in the water. No, he didn't dip and, yeah. yeah, dip down for a sample and have it tested later. But they were searching with searchlights at night. So he can see that there's something oily, some kind of a slick in right. the water. And he knows and what also, oil looks like in the water. Of course. Yeah. They, uh, every, yes, every person on a boat usually has. And also they're the ones who saw the explosion, the big flash of light and yeah. the flames reaching 100 feet in the air. So that together really tells me that, yeah, probably an explosion, but this is the thing about stories like this, all these little bits that, uh, no, they tested the water and there's no oil. Does that refute the eyewitness account? But that's a pretty spectacular eyewitness account. So. Yes. The explosion correlated with uh, position data from the USS Solomon's radar. That's that correct. saw both the mariners converge and then separate and do exactly what they were supposed to be doing, and then one disappeared. So right. even though there's no trace of that plane, we have a pretty good idea of what most likely happened to it. We just don't know why it exploded no. and vanished. But we did discuss that a little bit. It was nicknamed the flying gas tank. Yeah. And the vapors from the fuel, the aviation fuel, tended to collect in the bilges of the engine wells. They usually said no smoking. Well, always said that was the going rule in these things. No smoking, but hey, this is the 40s. A lot of guys smoked. Yeah. Maybe somebody ignored that. Who knows? Could have been an electrical short. In any case, these things were kind of known for being uh, flammable or inflammable. So either way, that's a likely explanation, but it's just so odd that it's attached to this, but it adds to the overall mystery of Flight 19. False alarms. This is a section of tonight's show that I particularly was interested in. And I guess it's because I feel like it really highlights what happens when a massive search is underway. And, and something's out there in the public's mind. There's a problem happening and the whole world is trying to get involved in fixing the problem. Right. Also, too, as you used to say. No, I don't say You that. don't say it anymore. <laughs> <But> they, <laughs> I mean, anymore. Just, I just did it to rile you. That search, which was the largest of its kind up until then... Yeah. Was not starting off very smoothly, as we saw. No. It was poor communication to begin with. Nobody was really certain what the other parties were doing. And it starts off with a tragedy of its own. Yes. The search in itself. As we said before, the loss of 14 people plus 13 on the PBM-5 Mariner, that's quite a bit for something that's being bungled that was unexpected. This is not wartime, which is expected. Those things do happen. And you do a limited search. here. They're putting their full effort into finding out what happened and right away, even though they had to, again, really fully start the next day. So the nighttime search that evening didn't go so well. It's also very stormy, high seas, very rough, non-favorable conditions. But the next day they start in full search. I guess what I wonder is sometimes some of them seem like messages to me or what you might call a glitch in the matrix, which is, by the way, a fascinating subreddit. But for you scientists out there, this is broad speculation based on a gut feeling or an instinct that has no basis in science. This is just me. But at Astonishing Legends, we like to look at every angle, from the mundane to the scientifically rooted to the radically out there. And I felt compelled to explore this point of view. The glitch in the matrix subreddit, which I just mentioned, is so fascinating. If you've seen the matrix, I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen it, although a lot of people did see it. Mm. There's that scene in the movie where they're trapped in a building and they're going up the stairs and Keanu Reeves or Neo, which is an anagram for, for one. <laughs> the one. Yeah, he the just one. says, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And they're like, what? What'd you see? Yeah. And well, they want to know because if you did see something out of place, yes. which normally isn't that strange, to them, something's about to happen. It's a big deal. And what happens is as they're going up the stairs, he sees this black cat. It walks past him. And then it walks past him again and does the exact same thing. 
That's the glitch in the matrix. And of course, this is a movie. This is not science. I get that. It's the Wachowskis. But it's a pretty amazing moment where they say, you know, that means they're changing something. They're changing the program. Right. And, well, actually, you, you think it might not be science, but theoretical physicists and some futurists are thinking, and Elon Musk are thinking that maybe we are living in some kind of representational simulation. It's funny you should mention Elon Musk. I just want to say kudos to him and SpaceX. Oh, Yesterday, okay. yeah. they pulled off a remarkable thing. They launched a satellite into orbit and returned the launch vehicle yeah. to a postage stamp sized barge in the middle of the ocean. Just <laughs> mind blowing. Still mind not going to pay $20 million to get on that flight that orbits the moon just yet. Yeah. We're going to see how that, that works Let out. Let a few other people go. Yeah, right. I actually just went over to the Glitch in the Matrix subreddit today. Mm -hmm. I hadn't been there in a while because I wanted to share with people. And if people don't know what Reddit is, it's a community message board where things that are upvoted get more prominent featuring. So and yes, it, it's and a, lot, and a lot of smarty pants can be very vicious. Yes, so. yes. And uh, <laughs> so be careful if you post anything. Yes, we have a subreddit, uh, Astonishing Legends. But I went to the glitch one and here's the kind of story that is on there that was just posted today. It was a few hours before I looked at this, eight hours before I looked at it today. There was a guy that was riding with his son in Reykjavik, Iceland, on a bus, possibly on vacation or something like that. And they were looking out the window and they went past this little white bridge, it was very idyllic and they both happened to notice it and they went past it and then five minutes later, they went past the exact same setup again. Well, they were abducted. <laughs> well, <laughs> and they <laughs> described the bus as being quiet and having a weird feeling. Oh. That's what a glitch in the matrix is. I think he was posting it because it wasn't just him that experienced it. It was him and his son. He had another eyewitness. Uh, well, temporal displacement. And we have a story in the folder works brewing, trying to get the right people to come forward and tell their story about strange things being seen by two people, but differently. Yes. I mean, different weird things on the same trip. And yes. neither of them remembering exactly what the other person saw. Like, I didn't see that. Yeah, we got to get them on, by the way. We need so to make some phone calls. It, yeah, <laughs> it's a phenomenon. It yeah, happens. It does happen. So the next thing I thought is like, when something big is going on, like the disappearance of Flight 19 or... Baby Jessica is stuck in a well. Yes. Or a large natural disaster like a tsunami. You always hear stories of things happening during the course of events that defy explanation. And just a few weeks ago, we were talking about the tornadoes in Joplin, Missouri that devastated most of that town. Some of the survivors, the children and the families, described seeing butterfly people hovering over them and protecting them. Oh, boy. In fact, even today, there's murals of the butterfly people. And they did not call them angels. They called them butterfly people. Mm -hmm. This is a recurring thing. This is something that comes up a lot. Yeah. And just a few weeks ago, we were talking about the uh, cosmonauts who saw the beings outside of the so Soyuz, uh, I believe, capsule. Yeah, a large, massive, angelic-like being. Yes, complete with halo and wings. And a sword. Yeah and a sword. So right. anyway, news stories of disasters are always replete with misinformation. You know that, especially early on, when you first start watching the news about some big event, there's always facts that aren't right. How many casualties they've been, how many survivors, what exactly is happening. And I've always wondered, is that just a case of reporters trying to get the story out as quickly as possible and therefore not taking the time to fact check or not being able to fact check? Right. Or is it something more? Is it some kind of clue born from the collective psyche of humanity desperately seeking an answer? Or equally, could it be created in a way by the collective consciousness and be unrelated to what actually happened? Or is it just a bunch of frantic people thinking every little thing they see is related, in this case, to Flight 19, or whatever major event is unfolding in that moment? But no matter what, the touching part of it for me is that people at large, from the search and rescue folks to the civilians, are trying real hard to find these boys when it comes to Flight 19. It's a powerful example of goodwill and a sincere desire to help folks out who are in distress, 
even when we don't know them. And it's one of the things that always personally gives me hope for the future. And that's how people come together in an emergency to help each other. Let's get to the specific events of false alarms that came up during the search for Flight 19. The morning after Flight 19 vanished, 200 planes from up and down the east coast of Florida are flying out to sea. December 6th, 1945. That is correct. 17 ships, including the Solomons, which is a carrier. And we should have mentioned this in part two, but the Solomons had no aircraft on board. She was at sea as a carrier with no aircraft on to help land-based pilots qualify for carrier duty. So they were flying out and trying to land on her. Yeah, that's a very difficult thing to do, by the way. It's the hardest thing you can do as a pilot. I have heard that yeah. uh, beyond the actual act of just flying a helicopter. Apparently, that's the actual hardest thing to operate. But a carrier landing is the hardest landing you can make in an airplane. Yes. That's my understanding. Right. From the things I have read and watched videos of, a landing at night in really rough seas in a modern jet for a naval aviator is extremely difficult because think about this, the deck could be rising 10 to 15 feet on these rough waves. Yeah. And you're coming in slow jet speed, but all you have really to guide you is what they call the meatball. And it's this big glowing light orb that doesn't give off too much light because you don't want to give away the carrier's position from enemy aircraft or other ships. So they're using that, plus the call and the guy, you know, who's in charge of bringing the plane in. Very, very difficult thing to do, and I've seen a couple of videos, uh, deck flight videos, where somebody had to eject. Yeah. Didn't make it, crashed the Well, they the used one, they used some stock footage of one in Top Gun in the movie. Oh, yeah, that's they, right. They cut it in, you could tell it was old footage, the guy ejected because it slammed into the deck. The boat's moving up and down, it may be going sideways, if there's a crosswind, the plane may be going sideways. I mean, I believe that they're supposed to turn into the wind to help you land, but maybe they can't. Maybe it's a combat scenario and the carrier has to be doing whatever. And I should, I'm talking out of my, I have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> no, but about. It's so, it's so fascinating. And but every time yeah. I've tried to do it in a game, I've died. So oh, okay. in a video game. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be talking about it then. Yeah, but yeah. the point about the Solomons is that you have a large naval vessel joined in the search who also reported on the radar that with a PBM-5 Mariner training 49, that dropped off the radar at about the same time and location as when the SS Gaines Mills reported. Saw the explosions. Exactly. So that's, that's right. a little verification there. Yes. And even though the Solomons was empty prior to the search, on December 9th, 11 Avengers actually flew out to the Solomons to make the ongoing search easier because it was easier for them to leave and come back from it. Although exactly. apparently several of them were rusty at carrier landings. <laughs> yeah. Well. But there were no accidents. Right. So the false alarms for that day. Boca Raton reported an unclear SOS repeated multiple times at 3,870 kilocycles, then it vanished. You know what just flashed in my memory here? What? Uh, that is not in our notes, is all of the false alarms that were heard after Amelia supposedly yeah. went down. Hundreds of them. What is that? See, that's my thing. There, well, that's, that's a social thing. In that case, that's people in a, in a fairly relatively new technology. It's that weird human thing of wanting to join in to something grander and something exciting and calling in like, this is Amelia, I'm down, uh, help me. And it's like, well, you're not helping anything. In fact, you're hindering the search but people still do it anyway. They interfere. They can't help themselves. No, I agree. But I think in some cases, and kind of what I was positing here a few minutes ago, is that there are things like this. Like this SOS signal came into a military base. Yeah. They know what they're listening for. Right. They're on a frequency that's not a common frequency. They're hearing it. What is that? Yeah. Where is that coming from? It vanished. There's no follow-up on it. Did someone just die? Is it made up? Yeah. Is it a some sort of vestige of the actual loss of Flight 19 that's just appearing in a weird place? That's the question I'm asking. That's when, yeah. I, when you get to the open mind part of this. What was that signal? Right. 
and that's not the only one. Another pilot involved in the search reported seeing a body in a life jacket floating just below the water's surface 50 miles south of Jacksonville. Uh. An Orlando woman reported seeing blue and green flares at 2 a.m., 10 miles north of Christmas, Florida, just west, west being the important thing here, of Cape Canaveral. This is over land, people. This is inland Florida. She saw flares, not out over the ocean. A plane was sent to check that out, too. But here's the thing about that. Mm. She saw blue and green flares. Flight 19 was carrying red flares. Mm. Yeah. So what did she see? Who knows? Would someone else having a crisis? I don't know. Or (laughs) is it made up? Or did she see some airplane lights and she said they were flares? No, there's a lot of these stories as well. And we'd like to get way out there. But we also, again, look at the rational parts. And a lot of people do mistake what they're seeing. Yeah. And especially with UFOs. That's true. Yeah, we always goof on the fact that like, oh, you just saw Venus. And it's like, well, that sounds ridiculous. But a lot of people do see the planet Venus because it is so bright. Super bright. Yeah. they I saw it last night. (laughs) Yeah, but it, it wasn't zigzagging. No. See, that's where Scott and I have some criteria. Things like that were, again, non ballistic motion. So something else has to stand out here. It's a pretty thin report of a false alarm, but it's interesting. Yeah. A lot of the emotion that's happening around an exciting big event like this people's emotions and their senses are perked up. What was it John Keel's business card said? An expert on practically nothing at all or something like that? <laughs> I don't know, but I want to get one of those. Yeah, yeah it's like, a great card. Yeah. There was also a bus driver on the road between Barberville and De Leon Springs, Florida, who saw a bright blue flame lasting 30 seconds in the sky on the morning of December 5th. He said it lit up the entire area. This is in the morning of the yeah. disappearance. Yes. However, officers at nearby bases had seen it too. It was a meteorite. Okay. Well, there you go. Some things are interpreted. Maybe that's what the lady saw that was out of Christmas, Florida. Yeah. Those will sometimes burn blue and green and yeah. shade, those kinds Depending of shades. Depending on what they're made up, what kind of elements Yeah, the metals, right. Well, the Kecksburg, that seemed to glow green. And some posit that it's because of the copper shielding. And You're copper right. will burn green. Cobalt burns blue. And if you get a Duraflame log that makes different colors, it's because of the minerals in there. Yeah, I'd love so, that. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but here's the point. People are calling in with all different kinds of stuff around this incident, which are strange, and you don't know if they're true or not, but they're interesting. Yeah, exactly. So December 7th, two days after Flight 19 disappeared, a PB4Y search plane spotted an oil slick around 2 in the afternoon. This oil slick was almost exactly in the center of the flight's position fix by the radios that we reported. Oh, you mean that uh, that 50-mile radius? Yes. It was right in yeah. the middle near the location that they reported as a fix, a possible fix for right. the planes. A boat went out, I guess, and found this slick. So the slick must be real. The boat was there. They searched 25 miles out in every direction from the slick, but could not confirm that it had anything to do with Flight 19. They didn't Mm. find anything. Inconclusive. And this kind of thing I was talking about earlier, is the slick a clue from the universe? Oh, I see what you're saying. You see what I'm saying? Mm. It's materially unrelated to the actual physical Avengers from Flight 19, but it's a message that keeps searchers on the right track. I think, yeah. tip of the hand. I kind of think of it as maybe some kind of an echo of That's other events. what I'm saying. I'm very poorly trying to... to <laughs> no, uh, but I, I, no, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Big things like this that happen with a ton of human emotional energy wrapped around them may have some other effects. And not so much like the stone tape theories of things getting imprinted into solid material objects here, but you might be seeing shades of something echoing. And we've said this about 
seeing ghosts. It's not necessarily a disembodied spirit. It could be a reverberation, an echo that's visual. And in this case, yeah, maybe you're seeing a slick, something that's not exactly tied in, but it's got a thematic recurring motif of this large event. Yes. Here's a little one that almost shouldn't even be in here, but I'm going to say it anyway because that's what we do. In Tampa, a man reported an explosion while he was out hunting. A plane was sent nothing was found. Mm. On December 8th, a commercial pilot for Eastern Airlines, bet you don't remember that one, kids. I flew, <laughs> yeah, I flew on right. a few times. Anyway, he saw red flares 10 miles southwest of Melbourne, Florida. Around noon on the 8th, another pilot reported blood in the water, 150 miles northeast of Little Abaco Island. For those of you who watched our Google Earth tour video, which I was mentioning earlier, showing where Flight 19 was flying, Little Abaco Island and its shoals are very likely candidates for what Lieutenant Taylor might have misidentified as the Florida Keys, if you follow that theory. Now, a PBY pilot went to the area, clearly saw the slick and shark-infested waters, but no debris of any kind. It could have been anything. Now, this is 150 miles northeast of, of the island. It's not at the island itself. But shark-infested waters, lots of blood. <laughs> 30 minutes after that, another pilot reported a white flag attached to a log 40 miles east of Daytona Beach. He went down to 100 feet, but saw no people. He wanted to stay and search some more, but then he had engine trouble. Oh, boy. Yeah, I wouldn't... Uh, Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is that? Did someone drift out to sea on a log and die, and then all they found was the log and the white flag? Uh, well, or is it a jokester, like the yeah. guys who went to Hard Island? People do that. They do goofy things, but this has happened with myself. Being on the water, you'll see something weird, and I have seen things on, on floating logs or deadheads that are slightly under the water, and you get there... And it's something else entirely like, oh, that's a tin can that was flashing in the sun. Yeah. Looking like a beacon. That happens quite a bit. You get there and it's like, oh, that's not a head sticking out of the water. It's not Nessie. It's an old inverted boot on the branch of a log you know, that's half submerged. About two years ago, I was out on my aunt's boat in uh, Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, on the intercoastal waterway and was swimming with a friend. Yeah. And we saw what looked like a head poking up out of the water coming at us. And oh, jeez. And the boat yeah. was anchored, but it was deep enough that we were up to our necks in the water. Yeah. And the head kept popping up and getting closer. And then finally, I looked out at it, and my friend's name was George. I was looking out at this thing, and my aunt who was up in the boat, was like, get in the boat, get in the boat, get in the boat. <laughs> and I was out, like, huh? yeah, I was like, okay, I'm getting in the boat. I like, I levitated yeah. out of the water. I got in the boat and I turned around and my friend George was like, what? What's the... And this thing's coming and it was a huge sea turtle and it was making a oh, beeline for us. Wow. Like, I don't know why they're not known to attack or bite or anything. No, it doesn't like, know what's... What but it was yeah. definitely headed straight for me and subsequently George. But we got out of the water <laughs> and he was fine. That actually was a head yeah, of a creature. Exactly, yeah, could have yeah. nipped your toe off. But yeah. Something I'm thinking about here as we're going along and talking about these false flags, as you could call them, or false alarms, does a number of these types of sightings of strange things happen all the time or in probably in waves, I would guess, a sine wave thing here, and we're just attaching these to a larger significant event and people are more vigilant. You know, this is yeah. the larger picture about this section here. Yes. So more people are, are aware that something major is going down. They're looking for any kind of debris or people or some kind of sign or anything weird. And so they're noticing more things. But all these kind of weird things are probably happening all the time anyway. Exactly what I was going to say next. There was a lot of other flotsam that was found. There were a few rafts that were picked up or they thought they were rafts, they turned out to be old target sleeves that had been used for firing practice. <laughs> exactly, that's my point. Uh, you know, things not being the things you thought they were. There was a billion other oil slicks seen in numerous places, but no debris. And here's probably the most solid thing that happened. At one point, two men were spotted in a life raft 
And everyone involved in the search got crazy. They were so excited. They thought maybe they had found survivors. The two guys were rescued only for everyone to find out later that they were in one of the rescue planes that <laughs> oh. had to ditch. <laughs> wow. In another case, there's a pilot reported a light flashing SOS. It turned out it was just a buoy. See, there you go. Right. Yeah. Okay. So but I think the guys in the raft who actually got picked up were just as glad. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, no, this is exciting for us. Well, and, and this starting, is the thing. Yeah. This is why you do training, because if they'd have been out doing these kinds of searches as a training exercise over and over again, they would have been used to all the weird stuff they were finding. But up until this point, they probably weren't taking this serious a look at this broad, expansive ocean yes. for days and days. Right. I mean, oh, there. No. Oh, no. Oh, no, that's not it. But I <laughs> right. but I do still wonder about yeah. things like the slick that was found or the SOS radio signal that came into Boca Raton our on point, a military channel. Exactly. To our point earlier, you have to filter out things that are somewhat more or less meaningless to this case and some things that you should add more weight to. So the radio signals that come in, more weight. The explosion, the flames, the oil slick, the aviation fuel possibly on the water spotted by the SS Gaines Mills, the radar drop-off reported by the Solomons, those things have a lot more weight. The 19th century historian Thomas Carlyle said, the history of the world is but the biography of great men. Well, those great men and women are the ones making the headlines in human history, so to speak. So, of course, that's who most historians throughout the ages have written about, and all of us regular folks who had to learn about them in school. And Scott and I do love to cover the accomplishments of great people on the show from time to time, but we're also just as fascinated by what it must have been like to live back in different time periods throughout history, you know, just as an average person. Kind of like how we were saying the Chronique de l'Ule de Bouf was an interesting glimpse in the heyday of the Count of St. Germain, because it was kind of like a tabloid of the times. Did you take French? No. Well, I did, four years, and, and yours is better than mine. Oh, merci beaucoup. All right, Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> if, if your 18th century French is a little rusty, but you like us and you really want to know what times were like in antiquity, and not just from the viewpoint of the heroes, but the real daily life of the people, all you have to do is go to the Great Courses Plus com slash legends and let an award-winning professor tell you all about it. And the Great Courses Plus doesn't just have historical lectures about other peoples. If you love learning about other cultures from the comfort of your own home, they have some great courses all about foreign and domestic travel where you could learn about local customs and attractions or even new languages. There's over 8,000 courses about anything you can think of. Speaking of peoples, right now I'm watching The Other Side of History, Daily ah. Life in the Ancient World. And what does the other side of history mean? Well, it's really about the rest of us throughout history. The 99% of peoples, as you're so fond of saying, mm. who weren't kings or tyrants, and what it was like to live in those different time periods. First, Professor Garland, who teaches this course, asks all the questions the textbooks don't ask about history, just like we do. Secondly, we discover what daily life was actually like throughout the ages, which, spoiler alert, was really, really rough. And third, the course takes a look at how even though human characteristics haven't changed much, the mindset of our ancestors was quite different from how we think today. Yeah, it's like I always say, if you think times are tough now, well, they were so much more terrible for most all of human history. That's why the Great Courses Plus is way safer and more comfortable than a time machine. Plus, you can enjoy it on any one of your devices, tablet, phone, laptop, or TV. We think you're really going to love this fascinating treasure trove of knowledge, just like we do. So check them out today with a free trial. Just sign up through our special URL to start watching, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Mrs. Sawbones, and you're listening to the Astonishing Legends podcast. Let's get back to the show. The Investigation. Okay, so we already touched on the miscommunication earlier in this series. Yes. Basically, I think other people waiting to see what other parties were going to do, and no one then getting around to doing anything at first. Yeah, in the left and right hand, not really knowing what each other was doing. Exactly. So these different elements that could launch a rescue search mission just didn't. I think also they wanted to see if the flight leader could figure this out for themselves before going to any kind of trouble. They want to see like, well, maybe he'll find his bearings. Again, this is not in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. It's 10 to 100 miles maybe off the coast of Florida. So maybe this guy will figure it out. No big deal. Yeah. And this highlights one of the criticisms that came up in the investigation, at least for Lieutenant Taylor's mom and several other people who took a look at it, was the failure to launch the ready aircraft, which Lieutenant Commander Poole had set up to take off in search of the plane. And there was a lot of circumstances about why it didn't get off the ground. Sooner, you mean? Yes, which is sooner, because it was a question of not knowing where to send it. Lieutenant Commander Poole, and he testified about this, and they didn't hang him out to dry or anything, Yeah, but it was a little bit like, why didn't this plane get out there sooner? This would have been the first plane in the air as part of the search if it had launched at 5 o'clock when it was ready. Right. It's like you said, at first, the incident didn't seem so dire. Everybody was like, oh, they're not that far away. They got plenty of fuel. They're super experienced. Yeah, there's other planes, actually another training mission, as we'd stated before. Lieutenant Cox with FT-74 is out there and can hear him and is ready to help. And he's flying towards the Keys. He's flying towards the Keys, thinking that's where he is. So again, another piece of bad communication or just misinformed information leading somebody that could help in the wrong direction. Exactly. And once the situation got more dire, they really had no idea where to send the ready aircraft at that point. And then they were just about to launch it when that fix came in that we were talking about. And the fix came in because all the radio stations on the East Coast had been ordered to try and get a fix on FT-28, Lieutenant Taylor's plane. And when it came in, it was just before they were about to send that ready aircraft up. So they held the ready aircraft back. Then after that, this bad weather started moving in, and it just never got off the ground. Now, of course, lots of other planes wound up getting launched, but in the investigation, there were people who could point to that and say, why wasn't this already in the air? It might have gotten close enough to communicate with them. And Before dark. Before it got real dark anyway. I think Larry Cush said in his book, and, and I'll say it too, doing what we do on this show. It's easy to armchair quarterback. Of course, you know, sure. Monday sure. morning quarterback no. this stuff. And I'm not being critical because you have to be in those circumstances. You're trying to make all the right decisions. And it's not like hours and hours have passed, but it's a case where maybe 40 minutes could have made a big difference. Yeah. You know, so like I said, it's not like, oh, at 10 p.m. they finally decided to go. It's like they were doing it, but it wasn't very coordinated at the beginning and it wasn't very quick. Again, I think just getting their bearings. Who's doing what now? Who's going out? Yeah. Who's going to do what? Who's responsible for what? So that took a while to get going. Yes. But that was very critical time because now we're at the end of the fuel supply for Flight 19. So after the incident of Flight 19, there was, of course, a huge investigation. It took a couple months to get it off the ground. And this is where the Navy did what any branch of the military would do in a situation like this. They really went after it pretty seriously. And that's why we have a 500-page report that you can look at with all the testifying in it. And we acquired a copy of that report, which is really fascinating. Also, if you go to the Naval Air Service 
Fort Lauderdale Museum. They have a website, nasflmuseum.com. If you go there or just look it up, they have a whole Flight 19 page, and you can download all 500 pages of that report for $24.95 in, in two sections and get the whole thing if you're actually interested in reading it. Forrest was joking that nobody is going to want to read that. <laughs> but honestly, <laughs> well, I can tell you. through the whole, yeah. Well, since well. I started looking at it, and th- by the way, that money yeah. goes to the museum, which is, yes. seems like a really great place to visit if you're in the Fort Lauderdale area. But it's really fascinating to me. I have a thing about accident reports, the whole thing about the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant. Uh. I was very taken with that report. But I wanted to read some of the excerpts from the Naval report because I feel like it really puts you there. It puts you in the experience of this investigation and gets you closer to the men and the men around these men and what they might have actually been like. And it's a few good men kind of drama here. Yeah, it's interesting to think of these guys being in this room and dealing with this review board. So what we're going to do here is Forstner going to read an excerpt from the transcripts of the testimony from the Naval report regarding Flight 19. I'm going to be asking the questions, and Forrest will be... I'll be Tom Cruise, and... Yeah. (laughs) Scott will be Jack Nicholson. All right. Are you ready, Forrest? Okay. All right. State your name, rank, and present station. Jerome A. Rapp, Jr., Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Naval Reserve, U.S. Naval Air Station, Miami, Florida. Were you personally acquainted with Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor, the leader of Flight Number 19? Yes, sir. I was acquainted with Lieutenant Taylor from January 1st, 1944 to the present date during which period we were in Torpedo Squadron 7, Pacific Fleet, and were VTB instructors at NAS Miami. From your observations of Lieutenant Charles Taylor, describe his flying ability and aptitude. He was an above-average pilot in the fleet. He performed all his duties very well and was trusted and respected for the way in which he performed his duties. Do you know of any circumstances that might have contributed towards producing a recent mental strain or affected the physical well-being of Lieutenant Taylor? I do not. Do you know of any recent change in Lieutenant Taylor's attitude toward flying? I do not. Lieutenant Taylor liked his flying very well. He was very happy doing it. When did you last see Lieutenant Taylor? I last saw Lieutenant Taylor on November 11, 1945 at 0800. What was Lieutenant Taylor's marital status? He was unmarried. During the period you served with Lieutenant Taylor in the fleet, did you have occasion to become familiar with the use of various homing devices as currently installed in TBM aircraft? Yes, sir. Can you state whether Lieutenant Taylor was familiar with these devices? Yes, he was. He used these aids in all combat missions and routine patrols. All right. It then states, none of the parties to the investigation desired further to examine this witness. The witness also stated that he had... Nothing further to say. There you go. Give him a good report. It's always interesting to hear transcripts directly from the source, too. That's I get, I get your excitement about uh, yeah, actually seeing. It's fascinating reading. The real reportage of this, yeah. Yeah, and if you really do want to read it, again, I encourage you to go buy it from the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum. Throw them a little cash to help keep that museum going because yeah, there you it, go. it seems like an amazing place. And you can download it and uh, read 500 pages of Naval <laughs> Report on Flight 19. And guess what? Yeah. You'll know more than anybody else at the yeah. party. <laughs> you will be the one uh, being quoted in uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, right. There you go. I did want to read one other excerpt from the report here, which was actually just a few pages later. So this next one is Lieutenant William Stoll's testimony. State your name, rank, and present station. William L. Stoll, Lieutenant, Junior Grade, U.S. Naval Reserve, VTB Assistant Instructor at U.S. Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. What are your specific duties at the Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale? I am an Assistant Instructor in VTB-type aircraft at NAS, Fort Lauderdale. 
On the afternoon of 5 December 1945, what duties did you perform at Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale? I was acting as instructor for a navigation flight for problem number one from NAS Fort Lauderdale. We had flight number 18 and we took off at 1345 hours due to return at 1600 hours, 5 December 1945. We flew at 1,000 feet so as to use surface winds. What were the flying conditions encountered by you on this flight? Flying conditions were about average. The wind was a little high. Broken clouds were between 3,000 and 4,000 feet. Visibility was 8 to 10 miles. Wind was over the water 35 to 40 knots, and the water was rather rough. What wind did you use in your navigation? I used a wind from 240 degrees at 35 knots. Was this wind verified by the result of your navigation on the training flight? Yes, sir. Did you hear Lieutenant Taylor, the flight leader of the missing TBMs, brief his students prior to departure on 5 December 1945? I heard him briefing them, but I did not attend his briefing. We had our own briefing. Did you see any of the material used by Lieutenant Taylor in briefing his students prior to his takeoff on flight number 19? Yes, sir. I saw Lieutenant Taylor's true headings for all legs and distances, which coincided with navigation problem number one, Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale. I saw this information on the blackboard opposite the names from his flight. The winds used by Lieutenant Taylor's flight were the same winds given from aerology and used by my flight, number 18. During your flight, did anything unusual occur? During my flight, nothing unusual occurred until, upon entering the traffic circle, I heard FT-28 report that he was over a group of small islands believed to be the Florida Keys. This is all I heard, and I landed immediately afterwards at Fort Lauderdale. Prior to Lieutenant Taylor's takeoff, did you notice anything unusual about his actions? No, sir. He seemed all right when I greeted him at the ready room. All right, that's the end of Lieutenant Stoll's testimony. He stated that he had nothing further to say. Well, he briefed him. He saw him go through the motions with his own class. There's no red flags here, though. No. That's an important thing, and yeah. these guys were there. They were around now. You could say it's kind of like the thin blue line. Or oh, that they're, they're protecting, protecting each him. other. You know, well, I hadn't seen him since the night before when we were drunk and playing poker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they're not saying that, and no one is saying anything like that. And I also think it's interesting that Stoll reported that he overheard on the radio as well him saying that he thought he was over the Florida Keys. Yes, exactly. So exactly. So that's going to come up again here in a minute. That's a little bit of a reinforcement. That he did say Keys and not Ks or not, some exactly, other. Exactly, yeah. Over the Ks. There's 500 pages to that naval report. It obviously was a long and drawn-out investigation, and here is the conclusion that it came to. Quote, It is believed that the flight leader's false assurance of identifying as the Florida Keys islands he cited plagued his future decisions and confused his reasoning. At 1,800 hours, he was directing his flight to fly east, even though he was undoubtedly east of Florida. That was the Navy's official position in their investigation into the incident. And the unfortunate thing about that is it puts the blame squarely at Lieutenant Taylor's feet. Yeah, as a mistake. It wasn't a willful misleading. He made a mistake and he kind of stuck with it. And it, unfortunately, it led them further out to sea yeah. rather than back home. So, And there's probably a lot of people that believe that's what happened. Yeah, you know, I always look at it. There's excuses and then there's reasons. And so when people say, like, don't give me an excuse. Like, well, I mean, I'm giving you a reason why something happened not to your satisfaction. But I get it. So basically, they have to have a reasoning of what happened. And from the information they can gather, it was a navigational error. Right. You it know. seems like a closed case. 
However, this was just the beginning for Taylor's mom. Now, in Cush's book, The Disappearance of Flight 19, he kind of portrays Taylor as a very experienced and respected pilot, but he also said he might not necessarily be considered a go-getter or a career officer. Well, yeah, but he's kind of making this a job. He's training. He's an instructor. And I think if you want out, you would not be spending your time training people, training other pilots. Yeah, and by the way, it's uncomfortable. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the deceased in this case. I didn't know him, and I certainly haven't done the level of research that a lot of other people have done. But I feel like it's important to understand that, for me anyway, my interpretation of what Larry Cush said in The Disappearance of Flight 19, it makes it clear that he thinks that while he was an experienced and competent pilot with over 2,500 hours of flying time and combat experience, he wasn't necessarily some kind of, you know, he wasn't like Maverick and Top Gun, although <laughs> no, he was well, a I, loose cannon. Well, that's but. exactly. So I wouldn't consider Maverick in this realm here a go-getter. It's yeah, maybe some similar in that. Maverick was they, a screw-up. Well, they have a lot of natural talent, and it sounds like Taylor had natural flying ability. Yes. Like he was good at it, but and, and it in a way didn't have to try that hard. He was just very good at it. So maybe the people saw like, well, maybe he's not as buttoned up and by the book as yeah. they would like. And I think that's what you're getting at. He's like looking for somebody who's just really by the book, follows every letter of the law there. But it sounds like he's like, hey, these guys get trained pretty well. And guess what? I've been through combat. Yeah. In the airplanes that we're training in to do the things that we're training them for. So I've actually yeah. done this. It's not like this guy's training pilots on an electronic simulator. He's giving them real world experience and giving them the benefit of his knowledge. But I could see some superiors maybe looking at him and saying like, well, you know, this guy's 95% serious. Yeah. But we want that 100%, you know? Yeah. Well, his mom latched on to this report. She absolutely wanted to clear her son's name. And the other thing that Cush seemed to think was happening was that he had portrayed the Navy overall as kind of bumbling to his mom over the years. In her eyes, it's her son, he can do no wrong, and also the Navy is incompetent. And it's funny because this reminds me of Rashomon a little bit, which I've referred to before. (laughs) It's a Kurosawa movie that... Oh, and a delicious noodle place here in L.A. (laughs) It's an exercise in the differing perspectives of people who all witness the same crime. Yes, exactly. Yes, I totally get your analogy there. The deal here is, let's take a look at the mom's point of view. At one point, she asked the nephew of her ex-husband to take a look at the naval report, and he apparently was a decorated pilot himself, and he went through the whole thing from front to back, and he sent it back to her with comments on the pages, with words in the margins that said things like conflicting testimony, negligence, bad weather, no commercial stations asked to leave the air, No central control of rescue, no radar, no transmission of fixed to missing planes, negligent training, all of that stuff. He essentially said to her that the Navy let Taylor down. In the Navy's eyes, however, Taylor made the mistakes and the flight was lost. Add to this the idea that some parts of the investigation may have been circumspect to prevent the airing of embarrassing dirty laundry like we just joked about a few minutes ago, poker games, drinking, carousing, you know, all the things that, you know, single young flyboys are going to do <laughs> well, back in the day. He supposedly yeah. went out, had a relationship, or at least he said he did, with yeah. this famous actress at the, oh, of the really? day named oh. Jinx Falkenberg. Wow, that's a great uh, character name. Indeed it is. She's considered one of the first supermodels and oh, a pioneer in talk show formatting. Yeah, really? you should look her up. We got a link to her here in the show notes. But oh yeah, get a picture for woman. the uh, webpage. And supposedly he went off to play golf with her a few times while he was stationed <laughs> in Florida. So, yeah. However, he could spin a yarn. 
So when you <laughs> well, the, the, like, yeah. another good portion right. of Cush's book, which I'm not really touching on a lot in our show, yeah. is every other chapter is about Taylor's upbringing and his behavior and who he was as a person, right. and it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. If you really want to know more and go deeper on what kind of person he was, the book has a lot of information about that. Yeah, whether or not he actually dated Jinx Falkenberg. Can you give it to me with your Humphrey Bogart there? Hey, there's Jinx Falkenberg there. You know, that's, that's not really even an <laughs> impression of anything. Yeah. No, but I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> one mother of another man lost in Flight 19, a pilot of FT-36, Captain Edward Joseph Powers, supposedly told Taylor's mom, quote, to my knowledge, no mouse ever successfully investigated a cat. Uh-huh. Basically you, you go up against the Navy. Yeah, good yeah. luck. Yeah, you're the mouse. Good luck. And Captain Powers is going to come up again here later in a very significant way. But in the eyes of the world at large, whatever happened to Flight 19 is an unsolvable mystery. And I wanted to make a note here, which is interesting. We were talking about this earlier today. When these big lawsuits come up, and this was the mid to late 40s, a mother trying to clear the good name of her son. Yeah. Nowadays, it would be a family or a parent or whomever was left over trying to sue the Navy for billions of dollars. Yeah, that's a good point. Because that's the way that people operate. You know, look, it's not And the their, legal it, system has changed. Exactly. Yeah. It's not their individual fault. That's how we operate for good or bad. That's what people go after. So as an institution, the Navy has, well, there was the USS Iowa. Yes. Cover up. An accident was tried to be pinned onto a specific sailor who was dead. And it ended up defaming the name of another one who was still alive and really had no connection. But here's an odd thing about that. The USS Iowa, I can't remember the year. Do you remember the year, Forrest? April 19th, 1989, and is about 330 miles northeast of Puerto Rico. And it yes. was a training cruise. And what had happened is that they were firing off their 16-inch guns, which is a massive projectile loaded into the breach pneumatically, and then like five powder bags, giant, like 100-pound bags of propellant, they call it, yeah, explosive powder, is loaded into the breach. It's closed and fired. Well, what happened is that somehow one of the bags exploded while the breach was open, and it killed 47 sailors. Yeah. Basically just by compression. Blew it, up the turret, Yeah, it blew it, knocked the, it off. Inside. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it knocked it off of its circular uh, housing there. I went to high school with a friend of mine named Jeff. I'm not going to say his last name because yeah. I don't have his permission, but he was on the Iowa, and for a couple of weeks, he was in my, not just at my high school, was in my small circle of friends, and for a couple of weeks, we weren't sure whether he had lived or died, but he survived. He was in the other forward turret. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, as we always state when we cover military stories, and especially this one, that the military is a very dangerous enterprise and operation, yeah. and accidents happen all the time. A lot of times you don't hear about them, but this was a pretty big one. And again, not throwing blame anywhere, but Clay Hartwig was one of the dead sailors and they essentially tried to make it out that he was having a relationship with another seaman, Kendall Truitt, who was 21 years old and married at the time. So it kind of ruined his good name. So with the investigation on this one, they had found that the propellant had been stored improperly for five months in temperatures exceeding 90 degrees. So at that Oof. point, the propellant becomes unstable. And there was a freshman sailor operating the rammer and he had overrammed the propellant for five bags instead of the expected six and it slammed into the warhead and they think that that's what caused the explosion wow here now it's still not the litigious 
era that we have in this current decade, but it's 1989 and it's starting to happen. So basically, it's like any large entity or corporation, the Navy, the military, or any of these auto manufacturers who have to consider doing a recall that's a billion cars that they have out on the road. It's so much money, it could sink them or really damage them. So, I mean, look at the ones we've had recently, like Toyota and Volkswagen. Oh, right, with the Takata airbags. Yeah, exactly, the Takata airbags. So the overall point is that nowadays you have to decide at what point does trying to shift blame or not make a huge payout or recall considered. And at that point, you see a tipping of the scales where now they have to do something. So this being the mid to late 40s, what we really see here is a mother trying to clear the good name of her son. That's right. And not go after, sue the Navy for millions. Right. So she finds a lawyer named William L.P. Burke, who's an ex-Navy pilot, that Taylor had twice saved from death when he was based down in Miami, back when he was flying over the Florida Keys Uh, on patrol for years— Again, reminding everyone that he was quite familiar with the Florida Keys. Yeah. At one point, Taylor flew out in a storm and landed in rough seas at night to rescue Burke from a raft. And on another occasion, when Burke had gotten lost at night coming back home, Taylor flew out, found him, and guided him in. We want to make something very clear. When we mentioned that Larry Cush had said that Taylor maybe was not a career officer kind of guy, we're still seeing him as a very heroic man of integrity, and his record clearly shows that. Flaws in his character notwithstanding, if he had them, both of these rescues of Burke show us all that Lieutenant Taylor was a brave man and a skilled pilot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's putting a seaplane down in a storm near a raft <laughs> I, in the dark. Yeah, foreshadowing irony there. During the border review that Catherine Taylor, Lieutenant Taylor's mom, managed to get, Burke stated the following, quote, I can assure this board that Taylor knew the Florida Keys like the palm of his hand. It would be utterly impossible for him to be lost there. He was aware that the Keys were in the Bahamas, which are dotted with shoals, Keys, Keys, Gulfs, and small islands. When Cox intercepted Taylor's message, This is MT-28. Both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to get to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm overland, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. He could easily have understood him to have said keys when Taylor was actually saying K's. Burke went on to say that Taylor's compass was malfunctioning and or the forecasted winds were coming from a different direction and too many decisions were based on this erroneous information. He added that a bad storm was moving in and that information was never passed on to Flight 19. He stated, quote, It is a contradictory assumption that a man with over 2,500 hours in the air and some three years flying experience over the Gulf of Mexico and the peninsula of Florida would not know whether he was east, south, or west of that peninsula, which is some 350 miles in length and 125 miles in width. It could more easily be concluded that the board was somewhat confused in rendering such an opinion. It is difficult to understand why the officers in charge found it necessary to send a training flight out when the course was partially covered by a cold front designated by Associated Press dispatches as the longest and most severe of the winter. Burke went on to add, quote, There was an error, but it was not by Lieutenant Taylor, unless he erred in his confidence that his superiors would not schedule a training flight when conditions were extremely hazardous. Perhaps he erred in depending too much on the reliability of the navigation aids and the safety facilities under the command of the 7th Naval District. 
If Lieutenant Taylor were guilty of any crime, it was his devotion to duty, his loyal compliance to every order given to him, end quote. Burke then did a snap a Z in the air, <laughs> dropped the mic, and walked away. No, I, and there I, was an explosion behind him. Yeah, uh, if this, <laughs> which he ignored, uh, <laughs> and did not get. It's a pretty out. great speech, but you know what? There's yeah. some there's some things in here to me that stand out right away, just based on the testimony that we just read earlier. Right, with Lieutenant Cox, who also overheard Taylor stating that he was over the Florida Keys. That's a second witness yes. on that same radio message. Yeah. And Lieutenant Cox also stating, having just gone out 25 minutes earlier and flown navigation problem number one with Flight 18 out of Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale, that they had no problems and that their wind calculations were accurate and there were no surprises. Yeah. And they just did it. Exact same flight. Right. They're still in the air. Right. Yeah. Anyway, five weeks after this hearing, the Navy fully exonerated Lieutenant Taylor of being at fault. And this is interesting because Catherine Taylor, his mom, and her sister, they had been really after the Navy, like a lot. Yeah. Like what you do when you really want to bug somebody, like calling a lot, <laughs> yeah. writing letters to admirals, and calling back, admirals. And back then, people picked up the phone. Yeah, yeah. Like, hello? Yeah. Well, this is the 12th call this day. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's like, what do yeah. we need to do? Uh, right. So there was a little bit of that, I think. But here's the Navy statement after this review that Burke testified at. Quote, after a careful and conscientious consideration of all the factors of the case, the Board for Correction of Naval Records was of the opinion that Flight 19 had disappeared for causes or reasons unknown. Yeah, and her argument, too, there's no planes. There's yeah. no bodies. So show us where he screwed up and crashed into the Everglades or whatever there is. There's no black box. You don't know what then. happened. Exactly. Yeah. In this case... What we see here is that it's really no skin off their teeth to just to say, like, okay, I guess we don't know. It's like Sam Rockwell says to Tony Shalhoub in Galaxy Quest <laughs> when they open the shuttle door yeah. on the foreign planet, and he's like, is there air out there? You don't know. <laughs> Why'd you just open the door? Yeah. <laughs> of course, Tony Shalhoub goes, seems okay. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Again, because I think of the era, mid to late 40s, and there's no millions of dollars in a lawsuit on the line and, you know, retrofitting every plane that they own because of this uh, lawsuit. It's no big deal for them to say, okay, it's kind of a draw. You're right. We're not blaming him. We just don't know. It clears his name. It doesn't assign blame to the Navy either. Right. They're admitting that, well, they could have acted a little faster. They could have been more conscientious about the weather conditions and what was happening to him, and, and if something did happen, if they were alerted to have a better plan together that would move faster. But you know what this does, and we don't really have a term for it, but it's the thing that you always point out. It's like when you mentioned that you don't put people in the haunted room on the Queen Mary because it's a financial problem. Oh. <laughs> this is a body representing a large official organization declaring that this is an unsolved mystery. Yeah, in a way. I mean, they're not admitting that this is Bermuda Triangle chicanery here. Or right. Anything strange and mysterious going on. But they're on. saying, we don't know. We don't know what happened. Exactly. And it's not fair to say right. that Lieutenant Taylor is at fault. So I think this is a good compromise for all parties. And this is what we were talking about before. When other writers have tackled this subject, building to the lore and the excitement of something mysterious and connected to the Bermuda Triangle, like Flight 19, it's like they disappeared for causes unknown. It's like, it's sounding more mysterious and creepy and crazy than it actually is. Yeah. You're just saying like, well, there's no planes, there are no bodies, we don't know what happened. Here's an interesting thing, though, that yeah. Cush states in his book that he wound up 
returning to interview some of the officers on the original board that made the original conclusion Mm -hmm. that Taylor was at fault. This was a few years later, I believe. And they had no knowledge that the Board for Correction of Naval Records had reversed their decision and exonerated Taylor, and apparently they were flabbergasted. That it was reversed and that they would say there's no known cause. Yeah, they stood by their original decision. Uh Uh-huh. Endgame scenarios. All right, this is the point where we need to talk about what might have actually happened. Now, I mean, we've been talking about that off and on for three episodes now. but yeah. weeks and weeks. Yeah, I, and I'm <laughs> yeah. not sure where I'm at. I guess for me, I mentioned earlier the Google Earth video, which I recommend to everybody. If you can get a chance to go to astonishinglegends.com and find the posting associated with either this episode or our prior episode part two, you will see an animated 16-minute video that shows on Google Earth exactly what navigation problem number one should look right. like and what we think might have happened, or which is yeah. highly speculative. Now with narration. Now right? with narration. And music. No, it doesn't oh, have okay. music. Come on. <laughs> okay. I got to do it again. Dang. All right. It does help if you have a hard time visualizing the confusion here. Exactly. Because there's different directions and vectors and degrees and headings and bearings and all that. Yeah. But if you look at it overhead, it's actually not too hard to figure out what possibly may have happened. What might have gone wrong. And it it really comes down to, in the simplest explanation, it comes down to the idea that Lieutenant Taylor thought they were in the Gulf of Mexico, and in fact, they were in the Atlantic Ocean. One position is west of the western side of Florida. One position is east of the eastern side of Florida. Right. If you're west of the western side of Florida, you fly east, you will hit Florida because the Gulf of Mexico isn't that big. If you are east of the western side of Florida, I'm making this worse, I can tell, (laughs) and you would fly west to get back to Florida. However, if you think you're in one and you're in the other, and then you head east out into the Atlantic Ocean, you will completely run out of fuel before you even get a tenth of the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, here's the easy explanation. That was horrible. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) If you slow it way down. Go watch the Google video. (laughs) Yeah, you can totally understand what he's talking about. There were some in the squadron who did think that they should just head west. If we we can, heard yeah, that. We've exactly. heard that in the radio transmission. And he did turn the squadron around to head west. Exactly. So he actually did head west for a while. Yes, we do know that from the radio transmissions, that at one point they were heading west. However, yeah. this is what I think. Right. He thought he was in the Gulf of Mexico, and how long is he going to fly west before he thinks, oh, <laughs> no, I'm he heading— Mexico. Yeah, yeah, I'm headed to Mexico. Yeah. And we're going to get too far away, and landing in Mexico is going to be a problem, and we need to get back to Florida. Right. So at that point, he may have been taking Flight 19 towards the eastern coast of the United States on the right track, but just didn't ride it out long enough before turning around and sadly and tragically heading back out to sea. And they may have done this a few times, technically zigzagging out to sea to the north and east, or if you're in a sailboat, if you are a sailor, tacking. Right. Essentially tacking out to sea in airplanes with this entire squadron. Now, the next question is, why are they all together? Why didn't some of them break off? And we're going to get into some more specifics about that here in a minute. But the bottom line is there's a chain of command. There's a hierarchy. And when it comes to a training mission like this, you do what the instructor says. Right. And breaking ranks with the instructor is tantamount to mutiny. It's not something to be taken lightly, yeah. especially in an emergency situation. When the idea is to stick together, you're going to have better odds of survival if you all ditch together. If they all ditch together, they can lash the rafts together. There's more people to help They're in that easier situation. To find. Rather than four planes take off, they leave one behind to kind of fend for himself. That's not a great scenario. Yeah. 
there are some who might suggest that there was a certain amount of group confusion with them. And, you know, we just had Bruce Gernon on the show, and I am very much a believer in his story of what happened to him. But in this thorough analysis of Flight 19, I don't see a lot of common ground unless there were things going on that they were not reporting on the radio. But to be completely fair, Bruce pointed out in the Electronic Fog story that Charles Lindbergh himself experienced electronic fog and then kept it quiet for decades. Right. Because of fear of damage to his reputation. Yeah, you're a nutcase. Yeah, Yeah. and if you're a military career pilot and you are experiencing something like that, you might not necessarily want to get on the radio about it. Exactly. You would just say, look, I'm having a problem. Right. You might not say, the reason I'm having the problem is because I'm feeling like I need to talk in word salad and my compasses (laughs) are spinning. Yeah. I believe there are a multitude of small things going wrong and getting misconstrued, all adding up to a major tragedy here. Yeah. In two different cases, we had the PBM-5 Mariner explode. Yeah. Separate thing, but grouped together with this tragedy. And so all these little things that don't make sense, part of it, again, is that this broken communication, nobody ever heard clear and thorough communication from any of the parties, really. Yeah. Again, the range, they're kind of further out, so that's a little broken up, and they could hear the signal fading at some point as they were getting further and further out, of course. But it wasn't like he was immediately responding to Fox Terror 74, Lieutenant Cox out there asking for help. Please identify yourself, ship or plane, so you can be helped by somebody. Yeah, right. It is a little slow on that. So again, there's some strangeness. Now I get it. Like, <laughs> we, I was joking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Any woman who's ridden with a man knows they don't ask for directions. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how That's bad, right. they're lost. Well, that goes to the whole compass argument. We had heard from some pilots who said, in a situation where you are disoriented or you're having a problem or you see something that doesn't make sense. Right. Or if in his case, he saw the Abaco or the Little Abaco Islands. Yeah and thought that those were the Florida Keys, but he was familiar enough with the Keys to recognize that they weren't aligned quite right with the compass yes. because they aren't. They're right. they're off by a few degrees. He might have said, oh, that's clearly the Florida Keys. My compass doesn't say I'm on the heading I should be on if I was over the Keys and they were in that position. Therefore, my compass must be wrong. Yeah. And not only that, both of them must be wrong because they're both giving me a bad heading because I know that's the Florida Keys down there and I know that I'm headed north and they're not lined up the right way. So the compasses are screwed up. And then when you lose sight of land, the last thing that you know is that your compasses weren't right. And now you're out over the water and you're lost. You're hopelessly lost and you're making bad decisions like the board said from the Navy. The first bad decision leads to several others right after that. Right. So it's not so mysterious. What I find mysterious about this, just all the communication patterns I found very odd and that, again, they were spotty. So you don't know what all the squadron is hearing and we don't know what all the land bases and other flights are hearing from Flight 19. And also, we don't know about the conversations they were having that weren't received by anyone outside of the squadron. Amongst themselves. Amongst themselves. And we want to remind everybody, because it was way on back in part one, the last time I think we referred to this, that they used to have hand signals. They could signal each other. But when it gets dark, you can't do that anymore. Exactly. And if one of the radio men, who's maybe a little less experienced, I'm not saying that any of them were, but if one of them loses the frequency and can't get back on it, and they're in the dark that plane is going to not have any idea what is going on. All they're going to be able to do is try to stay in formation. Exactly. They just have to stick within sight of each other off their wingtips and just keep tight together. But I know I just found it very strange in that it wasn't very forthcoming information. So again, I think some 
requests maybe Lieutenant Taylor didn't hear, and then later he would come on and answer, but it was a lot later. I'm not saying that there's any time slippage or time interference. I'm coming to I this conclusion. I think that is what you're saying. <laughs> well, Those I, are the kinds of things yeah, you say, uh, that is That is definitely true. I can <laughs> argue with that. But yeah. what I'm saying here is I think there is a pretty reasonable explanation of what happened okay. you know, as far as them getting lost. Now, I think that there's some wiggle room to the strange and to the unexplainable is that there may have been some strange electronic interference. Now, the reason I say is the compass, if he was telling the truth about the compasses and it wasn't just an excuse because he got lost, like, well, I, both of my compasses are out. There are four other planes that have working compasses. Yeah. So you just call over and get a consensus like, hey, fellas, what's your reading? Because they did talk about that. Yes, they did. It was Port Everglades. FT-28, this is Port Everglades. We suggest you have another plane in your flight with a good compass. Take over the lead and guide you back. This is back from the conversation we had in an earlier segment. Right. Where Lieutenant Taylor replied, Roger. Okay, well. And that was our whole discussion about Roger. What does Roger mean? <laughs> That's all we got. Roger. Yeah, thanks for the advice, but we're going to try and figure it out ourselves. It's pretty obviously, like, look to the west, the sun is setting. That's west. It's so obvious, it's ridiculous to him. I'm just very curious about what are the compasses were working? What's the status of them? Because, again, if his two are out, he calls over, like, okay, everybody's saying we're heading northeast at this certain degree bearing. You go with that. There should my, be no question. My personal theory, and yeah. we talked about this at dinner tonight, but my personal theory is that he only thought the compasses were out when he incorrectly cited the Abaco Islands as the keys, and he saw that they weren't oriented correctly, so he thought his compasses were acting incorrectly. And I think that after they continued to get lost, yeah. he probably felt like maybe the compasses were not out, or maybe he confirmed that with the rest of the flight, but he still thought that they were southwest of Florida, so he took them in a northeasterly direction. Right. Because he is reporting the bearings they're flying on later. Yes. He says, we're flying 030, we're flying northeast, we're flying west. Yeah. So he obviously had some reason to believe that his bearings had become more accurate as the day went on and it went into the evening. I think that the problem was it didn't matter that the compasses at that point would have been right because he was in the wrong place on the earth. He's, he's in the wrong starting point. Yeah, exactly. For a bearing of any kind. Yeah. To our earlier point about Lloyd's of London saying like, well, really no more ships get lost there than any other. I'm not sure they're counting any kind of strange electromagnetic phenomenon happening either. Also, because it doesn't necessarily mean you get totally lost. Bruce had something strange happen to him, but he survived. And they're also not necessarily detailing or able to look into the method by which something has vanished, especially it, if it's well, vanished. It, certainly, <laughs> yeah. really talk to the people about it. No, they don't. It's there's just no gone. Report. So exactly. this one sank, that one sank. Right. For me, when Lloyds of London says it's no more dangerous than the rest of the ocean, my first thought is the whole ocean is dangerous. Exactly. <laughs> it all is, of course. We're not meant to really be on it, you yeah. know. But we've mastered it to a, a large degree. Yeah, I think there's a lot more strange things that happen just electromagnetically that aren't necessarily evil paranormal reasonings. It's just the Earth is electromagnetic. Of course, strange things are going to pop up here and there, I believe. So in this region, who knows if it's more than usual, but I think in this case, I think there could have been enough just some strangeness with the wet whiskey compass, as Bruce said, spinning around where he's like, what the heck? <laughs> Why are these two compasses spinning? And maybe not for all the planes. But when I say he could have called to the other four planes, like, hey, I need a verification on a compass heading. And what if you get two or three different answers? Yeah. 
And it just happens to be at that moment where certain people's compasses are spinning. It's like, wait a minute, why are we all off a little bit? Or And maybe, it could be just enough. If you yeah. get out of sight of land, it's just enough that you're hosed for exactly the rest of the flight. Maybe yeah. three planes agree, two disagree. It's like, whoa. But the two that are off seem to agree. So I'm holding out the possibility for some strangeness with the compasses and with the radio communication. Now, here's a third thing that we haven't talked about that also kind of points to the Bruce Gurdon thing, or actually, more accurately, Bruce Gurdon's passenger, and that Bruce seemed to be fine, his father seemed to be fine, but a little more panicked, but the passenger was not just air Chuck sick. Chuck Lafayette. Chuck Lafayette was not just air sick. He seemed to be warped <laughs> by yeah. the conditions, and that his speech was slurred, I've been a little bit motion sick. You don't feel like much like talking, but it's not like you're, you know, where you're just talking word salad. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe a little bit of that happened to Lieutenant Taylor. We had a momentary lapse and just kind of lost it or blanked out for a few moments. Well, you probably thought this episode was over, but you can probably tell that it isn't because you can <laughs> look down at your your player, and yeah. it says how many minutes are left. Still but, tape on the cassette, we're yeah. reeling over. Yeah. <laughs> we're now going to talk about the idea that they did almost make it home. We're going to talk about Avengers that have been recovered since the loss of Flight 19. Now, I want to go back to some of the specs on the Avenger. We mentioned this in an earlier episode. 9,836 of them were built. 7,546 of them by GM. The other 2,290 were built by Grumman. 921 were sent to Great Britain and New Zealand. Grumman actually designed the Avenger, but they didn't build them all. Uh, at a certain point, they had to focus on a new plane. I can't remember. I think it was the Hellcat. And then they were focused on the manufacturing of that, and the Avenger production was passed off to other companies like General Motors. On Flight 19, according to the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum that we mentioned, there were four TBM-1Cs, and then Lieutenant Taylor's TBM-3D. Now, we found lots of varying information on these planes, the planes that were actually in Flight 19. For example, the TBM-3D has a small radar on the leading edge of its starboard wing. We actually found pictures of Avengers with these radars. I could not find any mention of Lieutenant Taylor having radar available to him in any of the research that we went through as we were studying Flight 19. So even though Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum says that that was a 3D, which specifically had that radar installed, we have no reason to believe that Lieutenant Taylor had radar from anything that we could see in the Naval Report or in any of the books that we referenced or newspaper articles that we looked at for this story. So maybe he wasn't in a 3D. Maybe he was in a regular TBM-3, which didn't have the radar. However, all the threes had more power, as we mentioned earlier in the series, I think in part one. The 1Cs, which were what the other four planes supposedly were, there was 2,336 of those. And I did want to point out that I used to have a Grumman canoe, unfortunately. <laughs> An Avenger? It, it, yeah. No, it wasn't an Avenger, but it was a great canoe. It's, it's Not by the same company. The same oh, company. Really? There's a man from Grumman who made canoes. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah. they went in and out of business, but they are back in production now. It's a great canoe. Yeah. Indestructible. Anyway, the point is these planes all have what are called bureau numbers, which is like a VIN number, like a car has a number that identifies it in a fingerprint. And the engines have their own numbers. And you can identify the plane if you find parts of it after it's crashed somewhere. All you have to do is look yeah. up these numbers on all well, these different plates and like, tell you where the plane came from. Yeah, like Tigar has been trying to do with Amelia's 
Electra. Yes. Yeah. If you find a piece and it's got a stamped on number, you can locate that to a specific aircraft being manufactured. Yes. And especially when it comes to the military, the record keeping is pretty tight for the most part yes. in terms of where these planes yeah. were, what they did, who was flying them, if they disappeared, who was in them. There's a lot of information. Right. And there's probably a database somewhere of every single missing Avenger. And probably another one of all the ones that were properly decommissioned, but that's not something that we could get to or that I could find in the past couple of weeks. There are currently 14 TBM-3 Avengers, like Lieutenant Taylor's, that are airworthy in the United States, with another three being restored to airworthy, according to Wikipedia. Yes, I'm citing Wikipedia, and I'm saying <laughs> it's it. Not, you get some emails no, it's about a, that. I it's a good know. source for some things. They're taking their statements made in the article from other sources. Yes, that, which uh, we always yeah. drill down so on. So why reinvent the wheel? If yeah. we can see that the source is valid, and we go check it up ourselves, it's just cold together in one place. We were talking about how dangerous just training exercises can be, and the records showed between 1942 and 1945 95 aviation personnel were lost from NAS Fort Lauderdale alone. Okay. 95 people yeah. died just in uh, training accidents. So it happens. Yeah. And the fact that there's some been some other aircraft like the Avengers that have been found are just amazing. Like, wait, there's other Avengers? Oh, yeah. You know, it happens. Yeah. They go down and uh, they get lost and eventually they get found sometimes decades later. We found a website that said there were 42 operational Avengers worldwide as of, I think, 2015. Yeah. In fact, in February of 2016, nine of them got together and flew at an event in Illinois in February. They're still out there. People are still flying them, which is very cool. I would love to see one in person in the air, actually. It would be really cool. Yeah. Haven't you ever, uh, I'm sure this happens in other parts of the United States and, and probably Britain uh, as well, is that on uh, your war memorial days, our memorial day here, you'll see a squadron flyover. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily Avengers, but there's no other sound like that sound. Yeah. And I can imagine if you were in World War II, especially uh, if you're wondering if it's friend or foe, it's a dreadful sound. Well, or a rescuing sound because it's our boys coming to save us. Or here in L.A., it's Harrison Ford headed for your roof. <laughs> <laughs> or your flight uh, on the taxiway, yeah. We're always talking about how Blue Apron can make you a better home chef, but Scott is actually experiencing that for himself. It's pretty cool, man. I've got my Blue Apron cooking process down to a science now. I'm able to look at the recipe cards and identify exactly what dishes and implements of destruction I'll need, as well as scan it for the best ways to overlap the steps in the process of fixing the meals. It's turning me into a pro, I guess. I've learned that my larger frying pans take longer to heat up, how my steel pans distribute heat compared to the nonstick ones. I'm actually making the meals in less time than the recipe cards say now. It's kind of an amazing feeling. I know what you mean. I'll bet you can eyeball things like a sautéed kale dish or a chop and know exactly when it's done to perfection. I'm definitely getting better at it. I've come a long way since I started, and that's my point. Sure, I could follow a recipe before, but I wasn't getting the feel for it. It's the little things the Blue Apron chefs have you do in the process, which makes all the difference. You start off just following the steps, but now I can really say I've developed an instinct for quality cooking, and that carries over to everything else I make. Not only that, you start to see patterns that the pro chefs know, like what flavors go together or why deglazing the pan boosts the richness of the food, and you also get faster and more skilled with the prep, right? And it doesn't hurt that Blue Apron gives you fresh, high-quality artisan ingredients and in just the right amounts. So it saves you money and unused ingredients don't go bad in the refrigerator. Life's too short to be making mediocre food all the time. So why not start your journey to becoming a better cook by trying out Blue Apron right now? 
Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Forrest and Scott thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Rob Christofferson with The Ark. Now, back to the show. Right, so in 1986, apparently during a search for debris from the space shuttle explosion... Yeah, the space shuttle Challenger. They were searching for the wreckage. They found an an Avenger. Avenger, Yeah, Yeah. was found off the Florida coast. In 1989, a man named John Meyer raised that Avenger from the ocean floor, thinking that it was part of Flight 19. Unfortunately... It did not turn out to be a Flight 19 plane. Because the numbers didn't match, right? The numbers did not match. And you had another story there from uh, someone who found five planes on the ocean floor, uh, right? Well, more in than five. 91, a treasure hunting expedition led by Graham Hawks announced that it, it found the wreckage of five Avengers, again, off the coast of Florida. But the tail numbers were not from Flight 19, so there's a 2004 BBC documentary, and it shows him returning with a new submersible 12 years later to go investigating this. And one of the planes by the bureau number, a lot of these times they're on the tail, or they also called tail numbers, it was 23990. So not part of Flight 19, but part of a flight that got lost at sea on 9th of October 1943, a little over two years before Flight 19 occurred and this earlier flight all the people survived okay so again so that's they probably ditched in daylight and good weather and calm seas yeah probably much better conditions yeah. faster rescue time yeah a bunch of different factors unlike flight 19 where there's a bunch of small little factors that quickly snowball into something bigger and more drastic but in this one yeah you have one plane out of the five that are found that does not match however Graham Hawks said that this is really not the unsolved Flight 19 mystery, and it's really too expensive. So for all parties concerned, including his investors and the U.S. government, it's time to just forget about it. But I guess in the end, he now thought he had found Flight 19. So you're wondering how that happened. Well, maybe one of the planes was (laughs) from the other flight, and the four or five, who knows, out there on the ocean floor that he could not identify, maybe that was Flight 19, And this plane had just landed very closely to these other Avengers. Mm, I don't know about that. Crazier things have happened under the ocean waves, my friend. Yeah, that's true. No, things get piled up and strange. So we talked about this in the El Faro breaking up the tanker ship that got caught up in bad seas and broke apart. And the recorder was, what, half a mile, a mile away from the ship? Yeah. By the time it all falls down to the bottom of the ocean floor... Things get put together and things get very much separated. So, and it, you know, it's all currents and, and different conditions down That's there. True. So, That's true. That's true. Again, but who knows? That's uh, Graham Hawks's story. Well, John Meyer is still actively looking for Flight 19, and he teamed up with a guy named Andy Morocco, and they have both done a ton of research on it. And they decided that they were going to try to get to the bottom of the wreckage of an Avenger that was found in the Everglades in May of 1989 by a sheriff's helicopter that was flying over a part of the Everglades where there had been a brush fire and the grass had burned down and so you could see this plane's wreckage. And Morocco, by the way, is an administrator on a website 
called aeroquest.org that Meyer is also a member of. There's seven or eight or nine guys on there. We highly recommend visiting it if you like this story. So that's uh, www.aeroquest.org, A-E-R-O, quest. If this plane in the Everglades was part of Flight 19, or at least one plane, could it have made it all the way back to Florida and crashed over land? Is that possible? Morocco and Meyer believed it was. They got together and did the math on the fuel consumption and the weather conditions, radio reports, and when they broke everything down, they determined that it is possible that one of the planes could have made it that far. And here's something interesting about this. Remember the USS Solomons that we've brought up multiple times, mm-hmm. the, the one that witnessed the 50-foot seas yeah. that had no planes on it because it was uh, carrier landings for land-based aviators Yes, until the search started, and then I think 11 Avengers moved out to be based on it. Yeah. Guess what else it saw at 1900 hours or 7 p.m. the night Flight 19 vanished? Four to six planes flying south, 40 miles southwest of St. Augustine at 135 miles per hour and 4,000 feet of altitude. That's pretty close to an Avenger's top speed, by the way, right then. It's a very specific radar signature. This was actually one of a few sightings of multiple aircraft. Now, I left this out of the false alarm section of our story because, frankly, we can't say that this was a false alarm. Some of the other eyewitness sightings were outside the range of where Flight 19 could have gotten to. But this radar hit that the Solomon saw was in a plausible area for Flight 19. So the next question is, could this Avenger that crashed in the Everglades be one of the planes from that radar hit? Unfortunately, not. Mm. Morocco, through intense diligence, was able to determine from photos and videos sent in of the lost plane in the Everglades, which to date they have not been able to find again. It's still out there. Was, in fact, a TBM-3E flown by Ensign Ralph N. Wachub of the U.S. Naval Reserve who had crashed after suffering vertigo and low visibility. The rest of his flight made it back to the base at Miami Naval Air Station. His plane was not part of Flight 19. However, this is not the best one of the recovered Avengers. Oh, no. This isn't the most mysterious plane that has been found. This is the best one in the mystery, I think. In 1963, a lawyer who was out hunting named Graham Stikelether. Could be (laughs) Stikelether. This man's last name is S-T-I-K-E-L-E-T-H-E-R. Yes. I'm going to go with Stikelether for now. And the second Graham of the story. Yes. (laughs) He found the wreckage of some kind of naval warplane near Sebastian, Florida, while he was hunting. This one had two bodies in it. Ooh, yes, intriguing. Stikelether, who ultimately became a judge, contacted the Navy and they retrieved the bodies, but never identified them or the aircraft. According to the Sun Sentinel, the Navy actually told him that that plane he found was indeed part of Flight 19. Aha. Uh-huh. They later denied that. They recanted it. <laughs> And they never identified the men who were found in the aircraft. Well, as we know, one of the planes only had two airmen in it. That's right, because one guy essentially called in sick. Exactly. All the rest of them had three guys in them, though. But wait, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Enter John Meyer, who found the Avenger off Cape Canaveral and also had worked with Andy Morocco to identify the Everglades plane and rule both of them out as Flight 19 aircraft. Meyer actually pursued a Freedom of Information Act request in 2013 to get the Navy to identify the plane that Judge Stikelether had found and the airmen inside. 
Meyer learned that the names of the two men had been redacted from naval records, exempting them from a Freedom of Information Act request. So he took it all the way to the admiral in charge of the Naval History and Heritage Command, where he was then told that they were working on it, but they didn't have enough information, according to an article, again, in the Sun Sentinel from April of 2015 by Ken Kay, who has been following this story as long as anyone. You may remember he wrote an article on the story in 1992, also for the Sun Sentinel. Kay goes on to point out that when Judge DeKellether was still alive, he had contacted a connection at the Pentagon trying to get the identities of the two men on the plane he had found, and the judge's friend told him, just drop it. Oh, boy. Those are words to make you not want to drop it, aren't they? Yeah. Why drop it? What's what the big that? deal? Why does it need to be dropped? Exactly. Now, you had mentioned that all the planes but one had two people on them. Meyer apparently thinks, for whatever reason, that this plane that the judge found was in fact FT-36 which did have three people on board. Uh Piloted by Captain Edward Joseph Powers with gunner Howell Orrin Thompson on board and the radio man, Mm. George Richard Panessa. Exactly. United States Marine Corps Reserve. Remember him? Remember the telegram? Oh, I told you we'd leave a little margin here for some weirdness. We have to always do that. Yeah. Why would the Navy keep this quiet? Now, let's think about reasons not relating to Flight 19. Maybe the mission that that plane was on that the judge found while he was hunting was a classified mission. Maybe it's still classified. Yeah. That's one reason those names might be redacted. Right. They crashed during a secret exercise of some kind. Right. That's still secret for whatever reason, although that's hard to imagine in domestic territory. Right. The other possible reasons, embarrassment by the Navy. Sure. Why? Maybe because it represents mutiny. One of the planes from Flight 19 breaking off on its own. It could represent negligence on the Navy's part in terms of what went wrong with Flight 19 in the first place and or the search, as we talked about. Now, also, it's a lot more dangerous to be culpable for negligence in terms of the litigious society that we've become. Right. There's a couple of fascinating things about this. Remember when we talked about the false alarms? Remember when we said this? On December 8th, a commercial pilot for Eastern Airlines Flight 56 saw red flares 10 miles southwest of Melbourne, Florida. Yes. That was in the false alarms list. That was one of the things that happened. This pilot saw the red flares, which we do know that Flight 19 had red flares. Yes. So you know where 10 miles southwest of Melbourne is? Roughly, it's pretty close to Sebastian, Florida, where Judge Stekelether was hunting that day when he found those two men and that aircraft. Question is, could those flares that Eastern Flight 56 saw have been fired by a survivor of Flight 19. Upon hearing the jet. Upon hearing the jet. And could they more specifically have been a survivor of Captain Power's plane, FT-36? Could those flares have been fired by George Panessa? So you're saying, positing, maybe they crash-landed, the other two airmen died, he survived, he fires off a flare because he hears an airliner approaching, but then subsequently disappears. Yeah, his family seemed to think that that telegram, which we read in the other episode, which said, you have been misinformed about me, am very much alive, Georgie, 21 days after Flight 19 was lost. What does that mean? His family thinks that it was accurate because they said that nobody knew his family nickname of Georgie. Nobody called him that in public 
But why wouldn't he come back to his family? Because they think maybe he lived on in anonymity or... Well, that's a pretty strange and extreme thing to do. People do that. They disappear for a while. They have head injuries. Yeah. Things happen to people, but... But they don't send telegrams after a head injury. Like, well, exactly. Or that was done by somebody in his stead. Things don't make sense about that, although it's a really an air of mystery surrounding yeah. Flight 19, because if he did crawl out of the wreckage and somehow managed to survive and just decided, I'm going to now live on the lamb or as a new different person and under a different identity, maybe he was tired of the Navy and crashing. It's a weird thing, though, to do that to your family. Maybe if you did have a head injury. However, thinking, yeah. if you did come forward and tell your family and you were ducking your service or you had some other reason, right. your family loving you is probably not going to share that with the general public. Exactly. Or the That's Navy. What I'm saying. There's a lot of strange yeah. uh, logic flaws with this, but I... Also, you could get eaten. Oh, that's if the other... If you survive that no, crash no, that's and you're the other in thing. the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. That's the other thing that happened. Ugh, that was a, a commercial airliner that crashed and the people that survived, some of them were eaten by alligators. Yeah. Because you're basically in the swamps in their territory. So that's another horrible thing. If you do survive and crawl out and you can't make it to safe land... There's a lot of other things that'll get you there. Yeah. This is very strange, and I just love the uh, phenomena that happens. The phone call, the Facebook entry, the telegram. Yeah. From the deceased person to a loved one or a friend. Yeah, there's a few Twilight Zones. That, well, that, happens, that recently happened, I think, last year with a brother receiving strange Facebook direct messages and partial emails from a dead brother. That yeah. he, and he had the only account. He, no one else had the uh, password to his account. And uh, so strange things happen, you know? It's not clear to me why Meyer thinks that FT-36 was the plane that was found. Yeah, I'm not there. sure of that either. I'm not sure of that. And we'd probably have to ask him. He's around and we should have asked him. We didn't get a chance to do that. But we did hear from a former enlisted Marine officer named Mark Howie. Mark served seven years, and he listens to the show regularly, and he took the time to write in to us. Very cool, by the way. Thank you. Yes, yeah. thank you very much. Some interesting information about Powers' rank and where he would have stacked up in the hierarchy in the Flight 19 squadron. How he goes on to cite some information from a website which we've already made numerous references to tonight, the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum website, which is www.nasfl for Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale museum.com. So you definitely want to check that out. Lots of great pictures and scans of all kinds of documents. With the filter of Mark Howey's experience in the Marines and knowledge of rank, he drew some interesting conclusions about the possibility regarding Captain Powers possibly breaking off from Flight 19 on his own. I'm going to read an amalgamation of several emails that Mark sent in to us. An interesting fact was that United States Marine Corps Captain Edward Powers was the senior officer on Flight 19 and pilot of FT-36. Although Captain Powers was a student and Lieutenant Taylor was the instructor, Captain Powers could have legally, in quotes, disregarded Lieutenant Taylor's directions because Captain Powers was senior. This would be just an interesting fact if it weren't for the Avenger that we were just talking about, located in Sebastian, Florida. So there were two bodies in that plane. Now, there was the one plane from Flight 19 that only had two people in it. But if this plane was, in fact, Captain Power's plane, what happened to the third crew member? Could it have been Sergeant Panessa, who survived and later sent that telegram to his brother? 
Mark goes on to say, I want to emphasize that I put legally in quotes when saying Powers could disregard Taylor because Taylor was the flight leader and the more experienced aviator, and by the book, Powers should obey Taylor's orders as they relate to flying. However, if any of the pilots or crew felt they had some wiggle room to break away, I believe it would have been Powers due to his seniority over Taylor. I think we know that somebody on the radio was stating, damn it, if we could just fly west, we would get home. And that's true. So there was obviously disagreement with Taylor. And to speak that bluntly on the radio makes me think the person must have considered themselves at least equal to Taylor's authority. You're swearing over the airwaves, which is not totally kosher. Especially in the military. Yeah. The actual legality of the situation, had Powers lived, would have been up to a review board and his commander. I asked Mark to clarify this a little more, and he stated the following. When two officers are present with the same rank, regardless of service, the date of commission, the date an officer in the U.S. military takes the oath to become an officer, determines who is the senior officer. The earlier date of commission being senior. The Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum states that Captain Powers was the senior officer on the flight. To be absolutely certain, you would have to see their service records and locate Powers and Taylor's respective dates of commission to confirm that Powers was indeed sworn in before Taylor. However, according to the same website, you can see that Powers graduated from Princeton in 1941 and began working as an instructor at Quantico, Virginia, where all new Marine officers are minted, including yours truly. That suggests Powers was an officer training other Marine officers in 1941, and Taylor graduated flight training in 1942. I have no reason to doubt the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum website, and the date seemed to support the assertion that Powers accepted his commission before Taylor, making him senior to Taylor. Like I said, though, if you want to check the NAS Fort Lauderdale Museum, you'd have to examine their service records. Also, if Powers was indeed senior to Taylor, then I am sure they both knew who was the senior officer. I am sorry to be so long-winded, but I am sure you know that nothing is simple when it comes to the military. Also, this may seem like an odd situation where there are two officers of the same rank on the same mission, training flight, but it is actually not that uncommon. What is uncommon is a situation where the senior officer is forced to pull rank as a student. However, I have personally witnessed on more than one occasion a senior officer stop training or reprimand a junior instructor afterwards. That is why I believe that if any pilot was going to break formation and head west, it would have been Powers. Add the telegram, and it is even more intriguing. Aha! Yes. That's interesting. You know, we get to the end of this thing, and yeah, there's some unexplained bits, uh, more than a few, and just a few bits that are just kind of weird, just a little bit weird. Yeah, and going right back to the USS Solomons, what was on its radar that night because no one else has been able to identify that. And if that wasn't Flight 19, then it was a series of UFOs. <laughs> right? Well, the, technically, they're unidentified flying objects yes, that yes, had a radar exactly. signature. There's more than one of them, and they are not accounted for by right. any other naval air station. Good point. Technically, you are correct, sir. Theories. All right, we're going to have kind of an unusual theory section tonight. You're going to find out why here in a minute. But we want to start with some of our ideas about what might have happened. Now, I had already said that I thought that it was possible that he was simply confused about where he was. Yes. And that he took the flight out to sea, and either they all followed him all the way to the end, or by the time they made a different decision, it was too late. Right. I think that we can establish that at some point, even for a small amount of time, he hit a moment of confusion. Not knowing exactly where they were, 
Now, again, he's not the flight leader. He's hanging back a little bit and observing the formation. He's the oversight. Well, at least initially during the training. Exactly. You know, things got hairy, he might have moved up front. Who knows? That, well, that's what I'm saying. I think he maybe took over and the lead was passed and maybe a couple of times between who had better working equipment or a more firm idea of where they might have been. And like again, there might have been some jockeying depending on... Uh, maybe some internal arguments going on. But I definitely think that we can establish that, yes, he's not totally negligent, but there is some navigational confusion. Yeah. And I guess for me, the biggest question is the question that I've said from the start. How could he possibly be so confused that he would think that he could take off due east from the east coast of Florida and suddenly determine that he was over the Florida Keys, which are far to the south and west of where he took off from. Yeah. I just don't... I'll be the first to tell you. Yeah. I've had some pretty serious hangovers. <laughs> well, I've had errors yeah, in judgment. Yeah. Right. But going back to what we had talked about, first of all, there's no one corroborating that he was hungover. There are witnesses that have said that they had been drinking with him, yeah. that they knew when he was hungover, that they knew when he was having a problem, and that it was pretty clear that he wasn't having a problem in the ready room that day. There are other people that have said it's pretty easy to get out of a flight. If you have a problem, you yeah. don't want to cop to it all the time, but you just say, look, I can't go up today. This is dangerous because your first responsibility is your students and your responsibility as an instructor. Now, did he ask to be excused? Well, my recollection, I think he did, right? There are people that say that he did ask to be excused. However, you have to remember that the officer that stated that right. also stated that he might have been mistaken about who asked him to be excused. There was another That's instructor right. that was excused who was actually sick, and they have a record of that. Yes, he, you're he right. He was under the weather. See, that's another strange thing that people attach some uh, premonition. Yes. That he had a premonition that things were going to go bad, so he tried to get out of it. I'm not convinced that he ever asked to be excused. Right. And even from some of the testimony that we read from the Naval report, yeah. everybody was like, no, he was fine. He yeah. seemed fine. He was a little late. Like I said, they ended up taking off at 2.10 p.m. Yeah. So they're behind schedule, but he didn't seem to be off in any way. Nobody in the squadron expressed any concern. Yeah. And again, you have people of equal rank in the team that are in the ready room getting briefed by him. So yeah. yeah, if this guy's slurring, if he seems dopey and tired and stinks of a few drinks from the night before, I'm sure there's going to be some concern raised. Yeah, especially on a flight, you're getting ready to go on a mission where you're all going to be flying in formation for the bulk Dropping of the mission. Bombs. Yeah. Dropping bombs. Dropping <laughs> yeah, bombs. Right, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to go up with somebody that you're worried is impaired somehow. So right. like I said, the biggest question for me is, how did it go so wrong? How did he get so confused how did somebody with so much experience, 29 years old, combat experience, multiple ditchings, able to land a plane in the dark in a storm and rescue somebody in a raft? I mean, how did this guy get so confused that he thought he was several hundred miles out of position and going a different direction? That's the electronic fog part of it. That's the Bermuda right. Triangle part of it for me. That's the part of it that I just can't see the circumstances under which he would be that confused. I just can't figure that out. Right. The theme here is when it comes to the sea and the air, two arenas where we are fish out of water or birds out of the air. <laughs> Strange phenomenon happens. But in the movie that I discussed earlier, Against the Sun, of a true story, the pilot in that torpedo bomber, Harold Dixon, you know they end up in a raft. You know they crash. So that's not yeah. really the, spo the spoiler part. But it's possible he may have fallen asleep 
for a minute or two, as impossible as that sounds. But think about this. These torpedo bombers are big and heavy, and especially the Avenger, the pilots describe as flying like a truck. Yeah. For good and bad. I mean, the, the bad part's not very maneuverable. On the good side, it's fairly stable. It's not squirrely. Yeah. like a fighter might be. So, you know, did he nod off? You know, he's overseeing the flight. He's kind of hanging off to the back at first. Who knows? I don't know if he actually fell asleep. There's no autopilots on these on these planes, but if you're yeah. if you're so practiced, maybe you can close your eyes for a little bit, you right. know, if you're really tired or the or the, so you know what? that's what the frigate bird does. I believe it sleeps in yeah, uh, it's able for to 7 st- or 8 seconds at a time yeah. while it's flying and stay aloft for months. Now, when against the sun, you know, he said it's very hot in the cockpit. They're in the South Pacific. It's sleepy. You can nod off. It can happen in the car as well. Yeah. So in that short moment, they miss their turn. Now they're too far away to receive the homing beacon of the carrier. So slightly different scenario, but who knows what's going on with Flight 19 and Lieutenant Taylor. It's certainly not something you're going to say on the radio. I, no. You know what? I fell asleep. <laughs> hey, guys, hey, fellas. Where, I, uh, where I are we? <laughs> on the other hand, I'm very refreshed now. So yeah. I've had a few shut-eye winks here, and I, I'm feeling great. But as you mentioned earlier, maybe some externally sourced confusion. Yeah. Something acting upon them would just, eh, just tweaked your electrochemical balance there a little bit. Your neural net got a shockwave, a spike to it, or something happened where you just feel now you're turned around. So that wraps up most of our conclusions on Flight 19. There's not a whole lot more to say about it in terms of the usual approach that we take to the show. You also may remember that last week I mentioned that I was going to be unavailable next week due to my eight-year-old son's spring break. And that would have been true. It actually would have been a dark week. But we decided that we wanted to take Flight 19, because it was so intriguing, a little bit further. That means we're going to be back next week with a commercial-free bonus episode dedicated entirely to exploring Flight 19 from the perspective of one of the most prominent remote viewers in the country. Remote viewing is considered by some to be too out there, even though the CIA didn't think so, and invested the equivalent of $115 million over 20 years into its development. However, if it's still too much for you, then we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. But if you'd like to go further down the rabbit hole with us, we'll see you next week when you can hear some of the interesting conclusions from this technique that was used to interpret the events of Flight 19's tragic end. Well, that's going to wrap it up for part three of our series on Flight 19. Will it be the last one for you, or will you be back next week? We'd like to thank Dell, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron for sponsoring the show, as well as our wonderful patrons at Patreon.com. Special thanks to John Boland. Hi, I'm Chris Cogswell. I'm Mrs. Sawbones. I'm Rob Christofferson. And, and I, I give, give permission, permission to Astonishing, astonishing legends, legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.